Blake? Is he Blake? I can't keep all Jake. these Jake. Jake. I can't Jake. keep all these all these cute boys' names in order in all these movies. <laughs> they're, they're very interchangeable. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here at Cinenation, we spend each month discussing film genres and the tropes within them. And for July, we have been talking about the coming-of-age genre. Uh, from Rebel Without Cause, starring James Dean, to Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, we've covered a variety of films that fit within this genre. However, there was one major figure we have yet to cover on this episode, and we wanted to save him for our final show of the month for our director episode. So in this episode, our final episode of July, we're gonna be discussing the life and career of John Hughes. Before we do that, Thomas, can you tell us a little bit about the tropes and stories we've discussed this past month that make up the coming of age genre? Yeah, um, definitely uh, a feeling of like being trapped, um, like especially in the suburbs or um, We've talked about, you know, some of these movies that take place in like the big cities, but um, but for the most part, it's like smaller towns and being a teenager and just feeling like, you know, you're too big for this town. You got to get out and go somewhere that that shows up in a lot of a lot of the things we watched. And, and you know, as as we've gone over a lot of different types of teen movies set in a lot of different settings, it's it's something that's very universal from Los Angeles to Texas to uh, Sacramento. It's just always like I'm. I need you. You always have this feeling of needing to get out of the town that you were born in, kind of thing. Um, we've also talked about relationships with parents being very important, but uh, either being like very important to the movie or just not having any parents around at all. Which, which Hughes for the most part is is uh, more more about parental relationships. Um, Breakfast Club, we don't see parents as much. But it's still like the, the relationship with parents is still very important. It's, it's just part of the conversation. But uh, yeah, and then just kind of like sexual awakenings, you know, um, people losing their virginity, having their first love, uh, all those sort of things. You know, your, your first romantic experiences as a teenager um, are always very important to these types of movies as well. I think in terms of the, the parental conflict or the parental relationship, I think I feel like the only one that really isn't present is weird science i feel like i feel like weird science just like we're just gonna make a sex comedy and the parents are away and we're good mm -hmm. um and bill paxton fills in the role for the parent and bill paxton's amazing in that um but yeah a lot of these topics are gonna fit in with the the light or the filmography of john hughes for today and hughes was this guy in his 30s who became known as almost this like teen laureate for the teen or for the teens in the 80s and uh, he was a, a baby, a baby boomer who kind of captured the voice of high schoolers, even though I think he said in, in an interview um, that he always hated that the baby boomer generation, which is kind of relevant today, uh, baby boomer <laughs> generation didn't let the younger, younger generation speak up mm. and he wanted to like give them a voice in some way. And that's why he started writing the teen movies because he felt because he got married so young, he always said how they he was when he was like in his neighborhood with the house with his wife and kids, he was always closer in age to the teenagers that lived next door and not the older parents that had like the nine to five jobs. But he only directed eight films during his career, I think in a seven year period, but he was involved in uh, so much more. And what's so interesting about hughes when you when you look at it is that he was not a director that won a lot of won any awards really 
Um, he really wasn't a critical darling in his day, and the films he directed weren't huge box office successes. Like as a director, I think his it, it, he ranged from like forty million to seventy million, which in today's terms isn't a huge uh, huge amount. Um, but well, this is like- this is a much deeper conversation you and I have have spoken about a few times. Is is you know the the directors that are known of the eighties were yeah. all pop directors you know you, yeah. d- you didn't really have and, and I, I don't want to say they're not all tours because they all they are all tours you know um, john carpenter is an all tour uh joe dante is is an all tour uh but it's it's and, and i think i think spielberg definitely paved the way for that lucas yeah. paved the way for that the the, the people of the, the directors of the 70s who made a name for themselves directing blockbusters kind of paved the way for you to be known as a director, known by your name as a director, even if you are making, if you aren't making art films, you're making big budget, successful movies, you can still have your name up there and be recognized as, you know, this, you know, as, as John Carpenter is recognized today as this master of horror, or yeah. as John Hughes is recognized today as the the voice of, of a teenage generation uh and and it's it's interesting to break it down because uh well and i was listening to a podcast recently and they just kind of said you know who are you know, the 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 directors of the 70s were the film brats they were like what do you call the directors of the 80s and they're also scattered across these like specific genres that it's tough to to pull them all together uh, yeah but there's a very interesting class of of directors and, and we've talked about zemeckis as one of them um, but this class of directors in the eighties who just kind of very, were very specialized and very, very successful, but yeah. very rarely won any awards. Yeah. And in some cases their, their, their box office grosses weren't huge. And I think a lot of it developed through like uh video rentals yeah. in the eighties, eighties, eighties and nineties and cable is this kind of rise of, of, uh, of the home video market and kind of just how that's it, things were better were easier to discover after mm-hmm. it got out of theaters like used to before before the 80s if you didn't see it in theaters you might see it on cable but you couldn't just go rent the the vhs copy i know i was listening um matthew broderick on reunited apart with josh gab was talking about how like when he was offered ferris bueller he went to like a oh i've never seen these movies let me go to the video store and get 16 candles and breakfast club Mm-hmm. and that's kind of happened but yeah Hughes what's so is it his his influence was still very or he was very impactful to like generations of filmmakers from people like uh Wes Anderson to Judd Apatow to Kevin Smith even and Kelly Freeman Craig who was the writer director of Edge of 17 has talked about the influence that Hughes's work had on Edge of 17 well and, you know we, we might be the first people to ever say this sentence but you know it's a little bit like Orson Welles. <laughs> and the, going back and rewatching his movies, um, you know, recently, I, I've never, this has been an interesting experiment for me because as, as much as I used to watch these movies on cable growing up, I feel yeah. like there was always a John Hughes, like Saturday afternoon, there was always a John Hughes movie on MTV. Like that was yeah. just like before, prior to MTV, Jersey Shore. MT, or, you know. MT, MTV, VH1, movies that rock was Breakfast Club was on that yeah. like a lot. But it's it, we've gotten to the point where when you go back and, and sit down and watch a John Hughes movie, you go, oh yeah, this was the first movie to really do this. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of like, you know, they always say when you, when you sit down to study, uh, 
Citizen Kane, you have to remind yourself that because we've become so used to the things that Orson Welles invented there that sometimes you can go like, oh yeah, this is just another one of these movies. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's what John Hughes is doing here. He's inventing a teenage voice and, the, and these tropes of like high school movies in such a way that we're so used to it now because they've been worn so thin by especially the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, and, and you have to kind of go back and appreciate that this was the first time it was ever happening. Yeah, I know. Like when rewatching the Breakfast Club, and we'll get more into it when we get to the movie in this episode. But like that was, I was like, wow, I forgot how unique this was for the time. Mm-hmm. Like just how contained it is, just how kind of like it. It still has a structure, but doesn't really have a structure. It's, it's dark, really, but it's a comedy. It's dark, <laughs> but it's comedy. It's very if it's very play like. Um, yeah, and so when we were when we were planning this month, and I don't know if we discussed this, Thomas, or not, but like when I was like, what director should we do for coming of age? We're like, well, we have to probably do John Hughes, right? And I was like, yeah, we do. Because I was really worried about revisiting the films of John Hughes because as what's happened these past few years, we've people have been re-evalu- reevaluating his work and looking at kind of the problematic issues within them. Mm. Uh, and they're all valid in terms of how women are treated and issues about race and uh, even about gender and sexuality. There's a lot of kind of homophobic slurs that are th- thrown around, especially in the, in the teen movies, of the eighties. Um, and I was, I, because I hadn't seen some of these since high school or early college, I was like, Oh, is this going to like dark, like, like hurt the, my view of these films? Because I mean, he's still a beloved filmmaker, even with all those issues. I mean, like, I know, like I said, Josh Gad did the thing recently of the, it was the Ferris Bueller, but there was this huge tribute to John Hughes at the end of like, oh, he's affected so many people over the years, but there's been kind of a, a pushback of late. And, um, and I don't want to gloss over those issues in this, in this episode. So we're going to try to talk about them. And if you want to read more, I, I, I we, we, we read it before the show, but uh, Molly Ringwald's article, she wrote a few years ago in the New Yorker um, talking about, rewatching these movies that she was in with John Hughes and viewing them from the perspective of the parents and how that's like altered her view of these films and, and kind of her, what her experience was when showing the breakfast club to her young daughter. Um, if you get a chance, like check it out. Um, yeah, it's, it's very well written and it's, it's, it is. you know, it makes excellent points about recognizing problematic aspects of a film while not just, you know throwing away the entire yeah. product yeah um, she's i think yeah she makes some great points i i had read that piece when it came out but i had not, when i read it i hadn't seen the breakfast club in probably 10 years so it's it, i told you it was, it's been very interesting to reread it having all of these fresh on my mind now yeah and so when revisiting these films what were your thoughts i guess look through the lens of what we've been talking about this month like I, I, you kind of mentioned like it was he's kind of the Orson Welles um, of of like who would have thought right who would have thought we'd say Orson Welles is a reoccurring theme on this podcast. <laughs> well, I think I think we we've talked a lot about the voice within coming of age films and and yeah. where the voice is coming from and whether it is an adult writing what they think teens would say, which we see in a lot of the older films. And a lot of the more current films, we can see adults tapping into what they felt as a teenager. And and those are oftentimes much more relatable. And I think that Hughes 
was i think really the person to main mainstream that yeah and and it's really interesting and we'll go we're about to you know go into his background but you can see it developing Mm -hmm. as he is i mean i had forgotten how much he did 16 candles and weird science like in the same year right or one year uh one year apart one year apart yeah he 16 candles was 84 and weird science 85 yeah and he he had a background as a as a article writer for the national lampoon magazine which was very risque and yeah. And National Lampoon was responsible for Animal House, and he had worked on the the Animal House spinoff show, and and was coming up as a comedian in that like male sex romp type of film. Yeah, and, and post animal post Animal House type stuff. Yeah, 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 and and you can see the transition of I'm going to write a teen sex comedy. Because that's what everybody's doing, which is and 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 then with sixteen candles, it is I I had forgotten and we'll we'll go into this more, but it's I think the most problematic of of all of his movies that we watched. Yes, and, I agree completely. And I had forgotten how much it was a teen, a teen sex comedy, but yeah. he taps into he he still makes um she's Andy is that one's that one's Andy Samantha Samantha, Samantha. Andy Samantha. is Andy is pretty pink. Um, yeah. He, she's a real person at the center of it and they're, yeah. they're, these are real teenagers which you know uh as much as i love it um uh risky business they're they're not real people the the they're 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 comedy characters set up for a comedy and and that's what sticks with you when you think about 16 candles you think about this girl just going through her day feeling profoundly sad that she's a year older and no one no one has no, noticed yeah. it. She's she's forgotten basically. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and it's easy to forget about all the like, all the other stuff kind of falls away because he was so good at tapping into making writing real teenagers, and you can see as it goes, it's almost like he fell into it accidentally. It was trying yeah. to trying to write another teen sex romp, and went, "Wow, these are real people," and you can see it continue to hone until you get to some kind of wonderful which is just a drama like there's it's not even trying to be a comedy not at all so it's it's a really interesting tra- it, journey to see him him recognize within himself that that that's where yeah. his talent really lies well i'll bring it up now because i was i'll ta- say it later but in, in actuality uh his debut was supposed to be breakfast club hmm. he wrote that one first and was trying to get it made. It was going to be produced by, I think, A&M Records. It was basically going to be produced by a record company. No studio wanted to make it. It was going to be a, a $1 million indie, uh, if, if, if that much, indie film. Um, and he was like, well, let me write a movie that's like in the vein of what's being made today. Mm-hmm. So he wrote 16 Candles because he's like, let me add like the 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 dance, the party. Like, let me add the stuff that's like, part, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High-esque or porkies or stuff like that which he didn't like these movies but he kind of saw it as like oh i have to get a movie made this is how i do it so when he wrote it everyone's like great this is a this is a teen movie let's fast track it so that became his debut was mm-hmm. because it was so much like a teen sex comedy of the time and that's why i think this is where i think he's the most problematic is when he's trying to be the other movies that are happening at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And that's what's, that's, what's kind of weird about weird science in that it, it is, it feels like it's almost him making fun of risky of business. Com- yeah. Because there's this whole idea of like, you know, there, there's this, all these movies in which this, 
these teenage boys somehow attract a mysterious, I mean, early manic pixie dream girl, I guess, but this mysterious yeah, yeah. woman who just, and risky business, I think, is the quintessential one of that. But I mean, it even dates back to American Graffiti, this like random, gorgeous adult woman who is just in love with Richard Dreyfus, And and so it does feel a little tongue in cheek that he's he's making one of those movies, but he's also going like, yeah, in, in reality, you would have to like create a robot to have this happen to you because it's not going to happen with a real person. Yeah, that's a fair point. I didn't think about that really when watching it. I mean, it, it was a, I could tell it was a tongue in cheek. It, like he was blatantly ripping off Frankenstein. It's like, what if Frankenstein was a teen sex comedy? Mm-hmm. It's kind of what it is because uh, they're watching it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, also too, briefly because i didn't want to go deep into this but also in the 80s with this with a lot of hughes films and and i don't know if it's hughes but he was a big component of this you're seeing this rise of like chicago as a film setting Mm -hmm. a weird thing like it had i think it kind of starts with blues brothers in 1980 because i think that was like one of the first ones to shoot there in a while but then you get all the hughes films you get about last night you get adventures in babysitting and a variety of films that chicago this like midwestern urban city well i think it was i think it was the the ultimate like suburb city especially in the 80s and like the real rise of the the 70s headed into the 80s the real rise of the suburbs chicago was this place that you know you you don't think of like the suburbs of new york as being you know middle class residential but chicago was this place where you could live 45 minutes outside of chicago and be in the midwest heartlands but still have you know the city right there and that's what a lot of these movies revolve around is is being you know trapped in the in this little town with chicago in the distance um but i think it really came to embody the 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 feelings of of suburbia that that were really being embodied in the 80s especially and this like nine to five like baby boom generation of like working in the city commuting to the to the suburbs which is like was been on the rise post world war ii mm-hmm. um and even bigger like it's worth seeing like when rewatching ferris bueller the day like kind of the like there this at one point when they're all, all the three uh when uh when uh sloan and 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 cameron and ferris are at like the stock market in chicago like there's very much these like 80s centric like economy is a bit like this reagan era type stuff is present in these movies sometimes just in the background um but yeah so like so chicago is an integral part it's 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 rising in the 80s in terms of film setting but it's because a lot of because it's because of john hughes and even though majority of his films take place uh in the suburb of chicago Hughes wasn't actually born in Chicago. Um, and so we're going to talk about a little bit now his early beginnings. I read a lot about John Hughes prepping for this episode, by the way. Uh, I'm going to do a, a promo. This guy doesn't know me, but I'm promoing this guy's book that I read for this. Uh, John Hughes, A Life and Film, The Genius Behind Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club, Home Alone, and More, written by Kirk Honeycutt. If you can find it, it's a great book if you like John Hughes. Uh, a little expensive? <laughs> Uh, but a good read, but it goes really in depth, his career and his life. And so, yeah, Hughes was born actually in Lansing, Michigan in 1950. And so for the first 12 years of his life, Hughes grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. Um, his mother volunteered doing, doing charity work and his father was a salesman, which weirdly is kind of a theme. Last month we did Bob Fosse. His father was also a traveling salesman. Uh, and his father worked in a variety of sales jobs and auto company jobs, being in Michigan with uh, the the with with Detroit nearby. 
Um, and his father, again, also like Fosse, his father originally wanted to be an artist. Fosse's wanted to be an entertainer. Hughes wanted to be an artist. And Hughes' father still painted, but he hid it in the basement. He didn't want anyone to know in the, in, in the neighborhood that he was like creative. He would write hmm. stories and build things, but he never admitted to the people outside the family because he didn't know how they would take it. And in his eyes, uh, or in society's eyes, a real man was supposed to work a nine to five job and take care of his family and not just be like this creative person. So it was, and so it was, he kind of uh, suppressed or he kind of just hid it from everyone. And the Hughes family was a struggling middle-class family that lived in a wealthy suburban neighborhood. A lot of the times in, Gro in gross point And then later uh, in the suburbs of sh Chicago and Hughes was the only boy of four, four, four children. He was one boy, three sisters. Um, but these kind of early class struggles of living in this wealthy neighborhood became a big part of a lot of his, his teen films in the 80s. Um, and in 1962, the, the Hughes family moved to Northbrook, Illinois, uh, outside of Chicago because his father got a job selling roofing material is what it was. Um, and his time at Northbrook would be kind of the big inspiration behind many of his films in the eighties. One big thing, uh, the original name for Northbrook was actually Shermerville until mm. 1923. And Hughes would take that name to create Shermer, Illinois, which is the kind of the city that many of his characters live and work within, in his movies. Uh, and it was kind of a amalgam of gross point and Northbrook. He kind of mixed them all together to make Shermer, Illinois. And so while in middle school, Hughes uh, began writing a lot in a lot of journals and wrote kind of observations and stories and lines that people were saying and kind of just about his experiences. And at the age of nine, he went to see his first movie, which was Bridge on the River Kwai, apparently, which will okay. weirdly come into play later. <laughs> um, and another film he saw countless times growing up that he related to, Rebel Without a Cause was a big influence on him. And he loved the film as a kid relating to De Dean's inability to communicate with his parents. And Hughes would later say when he got older, he realized that he related more to the parents they did to James Dean as he got older. He attended University of Arizona of all places for college, uh, but dropped out after two years and three and four majors. He went through four majors in two years and he left. Um, he became an advertising copywriter in, in Chicago at the age of 20, and he would also marry his high school sweetheart, uh, Nancy uh, Ludwig, uh, at the age of 20. She was 19. And yeah, it was weird. In 1970, getting married, it was very uh, anti-counterculture, I guess you could say, like to, hey, we're going to age 20, just settle down and have a family. And as he was a writer, he would sell jokes to comedians for like five or ten dollars a piece so he sold jokes to ronnie dangerville joan rivers phyllis diller and occasionally he'd hear them on tonight show and as he's a copywriter he started doing freelance writing as well and he wrote a little bit for playboy magazine um but he wanted to do more because he he disliked his advertising job he wanted to be a writer and as he moved up the ranks in advertising he was allowed to visit new york city uh because of one of his clients that was there and while in new york he began visiting the offices of the National Lampoon magazine. And Hughes would then become a contributing editor of the Lampoon during this time. And so, Thomas, can you tell us a little bit about the National Lampoon 
magazine. Uh, yeah, so they it was a, a humor magazine created by um, a, a bunch of Harvard alum who had worked on the, their uh, the Harvard Lampoon, and uh, they just wanted to write like a humor magazine. And this was at the at the time of humor magazines. They were big. It also kind of coincided with the the decline of comic book business because a lot of that. A lot of comic books had been like humor and comic books together, and and so National Lampoon and Mad Magazine is is the one that endured longer, even though it is also, I believe, now dead. Uh, R.I.P. But um, but yeah, they were just very sophomoric, uh, usually aimed at men's uh, humor magazines that thought that they were very politically liberal at the time, but in hindsight were. You know, not yeah. great, fairly yeah. problematic. Yeah. Um, but the National Lampoon's the magazine eventually turned into a radio show, which launched a lot of a lot of the SNL cast was drawn directly from the National Lampoon radio show. And um, once SNL kind of blew up, those people started getting some some uh, recognition. Then the National Lampoon guys got into filmmaking, which turned into animal house which was yep. a gigantic success and you know you you recognize a lot of the films national lampoon presents caddyshack being one uh the vacation movies which we'll talk about with hughes uh being being others that are very successful and then also some very very bad flops but um which, some... which also which also involved hughes as well by the <laughs> way he did one of them um, but yeah, so it became this whole kind of like media comedy empire, you know, starting from yeah. a, from a very very small uh, magazine publication. Um, there's a there's a great movie. There's there's actually there's a really good documentary um, mm-hmm. about oh what's I can't remember the name of it. It's, yeah, uh, uh, drunk, stoned, brilliant, dead. Yeah, yeah. Story of Nash Lampoon. And um, and there's also an, another one like a, a fictionalized version. That um, yeah. was a Netflix original movie. Um, oh, what was what was the name of a, fu- a, a futile and stupid gesture? A futile and stupid gesture. That one's a lot of fun as well. So is, I yeah. highly highly recommend both of those because it's it was a um, very cocaine heavy time, and a lot of the people involved don't remember a lot of what happened. Um, there's yeah. some like crazy stories going on. Um, a futile uh, futile and stupid gesture is um, is about uh, uh, Doug Kenny who was one of the founders, was one of the main writers on, on the movies, and uh, died mysteriously in Hawaii. People aren't sure if he killed himself or fell off a cliff. Um, but you know, it's, there's all kinds... The, the, the history of National Lampoon in itself is a extremely interesting saga. But, you know, launched, launched a lot of people in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, yeah, and and something you would not have expected coming from this very small uh, humor magazine at the time. Yeah, exactly. And so Hughes was a writer there. Started off as a as a contributing con- contributing writer. One of his buddies became the editor in chief of the magazine, and his first call was to Hughes to become a full time writer, uh, but he, which would be a lot less pay than his copywriting job. And Hughes said he would take the job if he could stay in Chicago and do it from there. <laughs> and they agreed. So. Hughes can so and they're like yeah but we didn't know if he was uh ever gonna quit his copywriting job so he at the time he was working full-time as a staff writer for National Lampoon while still working his full-time copywriter job in Chicago 
And so basically he would write nonstop because of this. And he wrote for all hours of the nights, weekends on the commuter train into Chicago and from Chicago. And the weird, this, this is very Ferris Bueller. So apparently if you'd ever need to go to New York city for a lampoon meeting, he wouldn't take off work. He'd show up to his office early in Chicago, put a jacket over his chair and a cup of coffee on the desk, hop a plane to New York city <laughs> for the morning meeting. That was pre TSA. Meeting. You could, you could do that. Yeah. You do that it, it was because it was like there was like an hourly flight from chicago to new york you'd hop on a plane go to new york city take cab to the offices go to the meeting hop back on a plane come back in chicago that afternoon and just in time to throw away the coffee grab his jacket and go home yeah i had a lunch meeting well, i was at yeah, a lunch meeting for the whole entire time and so he kind of hid it from his bosses at the, at the uh copywriting job i think some of them kind of knew he was doing it but they just like hey as long as you get your work done we don't care mm. So in 1979, there was the Great Blizzard of Chicago. And during this time, Hughes was trapped in his home with his family, which allowed him to write for 10 consecutive days without having to lie to his advertising bosses. And so during this time, he wrote a fictionalized version of his father taking his family across country to visit Disneyland. Um, and and so Hughes never saw himself as a prose writer. So this is why he never wrote books. So with Vacation, it became Vacation 58. He wrote it from a 12-year-old boy's perspective. So no one would question the writing style. <laughs> um, and it would later become the inspiration behind Nash Lampoon's Vacation. But as he spent those 10 days writing during the blizzard, Hughes began to think, what if I'm 65 and I'm retired with all my stock and my profit sharing, my money, and I'm sitting on the porch thinking I should have been a writer I wonder if I could have done it. So when the snow melted and he went back to work, quit his job and said, Hey guys, I'm becoming a full-time writer for the lampoon and then up and leaves. And so he steps in the lampoon. And like Thomas was saying, they become this huge media empire. And so they're trying to recreate that success after animal house. So they even created a television version of animal house called Delta house, which you probably never heard of. Um, and it only ran for 13 episodes, but Hughes actually wrote or co-wrote up to five episodes of that series. Hughes's first film script was going to be for Universal, and it was going to be a Nash Lampoon's production, and it was called Jaws 3 People Zero. <laughs> a meta comedy that was a sequel to the Jaws franchise, and it focused on the shark killing off all the people who helped create the original series. And the and the producers of Jaws were like, yeah, let's do this. So it was like all the all the original producers, were like, yeah, let's let's make this movie. And they got a call one day. They're like, yeah, you guys can't make this because Sid Sheinberg, who was the president of Universal and was a big uh, uh, mentor to Steven Spielberg, was like, what are you guys doing? This is one of our biggest films of all time, and you're about to like ruin its reputation by doing Jaws three people zero. So instead, they made actual Jaws three. They and made Jaws three the reputation. <laughs> The made, made Jaws 3D uh, at SeaWorld with Dennis Quaid and Leah Thompson as well. And speaking of cocaine, I think I heard an interview. Dennis Quaid said they asked him, it was actually, uh, they asked him what movie had the most co cocaine on set. And he was just like, Jaws 3D. And I was like, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, but Hughes's first, first credited screenplay was for Nash, Lampoon, Nash Lampoon's Class Reunion, a horror comedy about a class reunion that gets out of hand when a student, now a crazed killer, returns to the re reunion to kill his classmates. It was a box office failure. Mm -hmm. um, but his next movie is very integral in his career, and that's Mr. Mom. 
which came out in 1983. I was a big Mr. Mom fan growing up, by the way. Big Michael Keaton. Used to, used to run on, that used to run on uh, WGN a good bit. A lot. And I watched it a lot. And Martin so Mull. the I, 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 I was a big Martin Mole fan as a, as a kid. <laughs> as, a, as a young child. Clue, Mr. Mom. <laughs> oh, man. He was good. Uh, what did he pop up? He popped up in some TV show, I think. He was in Feudal oh. and Stupid Gesture. He is in that. He played that's, Doug that's why I'm, that's why I'm thinking. The older Doug Kinney. Yes, I remember that. So, uh, Mr. Mom was produced, or one of the producers was uh, Lauren Shuler, who later became Lauren Lauren Shuler Donner. Mm -hmm. And she had met John Hughes. She loved his writing in the National Lampoon. If anyone is not aware who Lauren Shuler Donner is, she is the the Kevin Feige of, or was the Kevin Feige of the Fox Marvel universe. Specifically the early, all the X-Men, yeah, X-Men movies and everything. And is the wife of Richard Donner as well. And she, a lot of great credits, but she, so she loved Hughes's work in Nash Lampoon. She called him and was like, Hey, I'd love, are you interested in writing a screenplay or blah, blah. blah. And he's like, well, I have this idea. I've been kind of like, like, like going around with this. It's, it's like 80 pages based on my experience as a house husband when my wife's away out of town and it became Mr. Mom. And so I love Michael Keaton in this movie. Um, we're not gonna spend too much time on Mr. Mom. Cause it's actually the only important part of it really the big important part in terms of the Hughes uh, timeline is that uh, he was fired from the movie. So basically Aaron Spelling, big Aaron Spelling who did like Beverly Hills now 210 and a bunch of these these huge TV shows in the seventies and eighties and nineties actually uh, came on as producer and they hired a originally supposed to be Ted Kotcheff who did first blood Rainbow First Blood and Weekend at Bernie's was supposed to be the director. He dropped out. They hired this kind of no-name director to take the film. Spelling and the producers, not not Lauren Schuler Donner, by the way. Lauren Schuler Donner, this is her first producing effort. So she was kind of like, I, I I didn't have much like leverage in this in this decision, these decisions. Mm-hmm. So Spelling and the producers did not like that Hughes was working from Chicago. They were just irritated that he wasn't he was not in LA and was in Chicago. So when Don, when Schuler was out of town scouting for locations on another film, the producers fired him. And this firing would create a a distrust uh Hughes would distrust producers after this movie a lot this is kind of why he became a producer of all of his films because he didn't want to lose control um and uh also maybe a big reason why he was very distrustful with a lot of people in his career as we'll find as you'll find out as we discuss uh Hughes was a very temperamental person he could love you one minute then hate you another and he'd fire you multiple times and hire you um and I think it kind of stems from him just being let go from Mr. Mom. But then Nash Lampoon's Vacation came along actually the same year and inspired a whole huge series. And the biggest thing that it kind of helped set up was it was the first semi-collaboration between John Hughes and John Candy. And John Candy pops at the very end of the movie as a security guard of Wally, Wally World. But real quick, Thomas, what is Nash Lampoon's Vacation about? <laughs> Uh, National Lampoon's Vacation is about a family going on a cross-country road trip to uh, Wally World, which is essentially Disneyland. Um, I believe it was Disneyland at some point. In one it, of was, it was. It, it was. Well, Disneyland, the original the story. short story that he wrote. Yeah. yeah, and just kind of the the things that happen along the way, and and it's very uh, specifically rebooted 
Chevy Chase's career, which was kind of in a in a yeah. downward slump. He was uh, someone. I don't. I don't want to go too. I, I, I'm fascinated with Chevy Chase's career. I don't want to go too deep into it, but <laughs> Hollywood didn't really know what to do with Chevy Chase after yeah. SNL. He was very obviously the star of S of the first season of SNL, and yeah. Hollywood said we want him, and then tried to make him like a Cary Grant type of leading man. Put him in rom coms, yeah, where he was very suave, and it just like no one, no one bought it, and. He did Caddyshack, but he, I mean, he was like a supporting character in Caddyshack, but he was, and and someone realized that Chevy Chase's sweet spot is the guy who thinks that he's the smartest guy in the room. And, and so I think it is used, I think Clark Griswold is one of the best uses of Chevy Chase because it is a combination of, he is a very charismatic person, but he's got this underlying asshole quality to him that you know you know he's an asshole, and and it coincides with his off-screen persona. But um, <laughs> but I think Clark is Clark is so incredible because the Clark Griswold, who's the head of the, the the father of the family, is is someone who means well, but is so inept, and and just has this under and it and I think it speaks to a lot of the, the way a lot of us view our dads. It's like someone who's very yeah. sweet and nice and means well, but there's this underlying like darkness that you do not want to mess with. <laughs> We're all going to have a great time. <laughs> and, and all of the, all of it, the, the, well, the best, the, the first three vacation movies all are about Clark wanting the best for his family and just pushing him to the breaking point and finding yeah. what that, what that breaking point is when you're trying to just be a happy family and uh and the the first one is incredible i i love all, i love the first three i love all of them um yeah, yeah european vacation is a lot of fun and christmas vacation is great but but yeah it's just about this idea of like trying and i think it really speaks to being i mean I, I i i'm now an adult i'm not a father but you know it's something you watch when you're a kid and it's funny but as you get older i think it really cuts to that idea of and i guess this has to do with coming of age as well but it cuts to that idea of being an adult and and recognizing that everyone around you thinks that you have it together but but not you don't you're just as like clueless and helpless as you as if you were a kid but you have to pretend like you do and that's that is clark clark is is a clueless man parading as a a father who knows what he's doing but also too uh you're talking about weird we talk about weird science later but um the kind of manic pixie dream girl but also that's the that's the uh christy brinkley character yeah the driving in the car mm-hmm. that's that that's it's that same character um yes but it, it, so the movie established the collaboration of john candy which weirdly was not in the original movie also the original apparently the original story for vacation 58 was uh, was uh clark or john hughes's dad the fictional version of it uh g- they basically t- get the gun that he buys goes to walt disney's house and shoots walt disney in the leg is what it is <laughs> Uh, and the original ending for National Lampoon's Vacation was something similar, where they go to they go to uh, uh, I think it's Roy Wally. They go to Roy, Roy Wally's house and say, "Hey, you're gonna perform for my kids." Holds them at gunpoint and has them like do an act in front of the kids. And they're like, "That didn't test well, so we're gonna <laughs> add, we're gonna add the security guard character by with this guy named John Candy." And that's how John Candy gets into collaboration with um, with uh, John Hughes. But also, you have Anthony Michael Hall. Mm-hmm. uh as as rusty griswold mm-hmm. and that leads us into 16 candles which is how anthony Michael hall gets his role in 16 candles um 
so Hughes didn't really like the way his movies were being directed uh, in 83, Vacation included. And so he wanted to direct his own movie. And so he basically said, this next script I write, I'm directing. And it was going to be Breakfast Club, initially called The Tension. Um, but as I said, he re he wrote a script that was more in line with teen sex comedies at the time. Because at that point in 1984, studios were trying to exploit the new PG-13 rating. Mm -hmm. So you were seeing a rise of these teen pictures because kids were now going to theaters and spending their own money. And there's a lot of exposable, uh, uh, disposable income uh, at that point in the 80s. So 16 Candles happened. So... This is the big one. This is the most problematic one to begin with, it feels like. Um, Thomas, what is 16 Candles about? So 16 Candles is about a girl who turns 16 and uh, none of her family remembers her birth. Everyone forgets her birthday. And it all takes place in like 24 hours, uh, a little bit, a little bit over 24 I think it's hours. Two, I think it's two, day, it's two days because it's the it, her well, birthday and the wedding the next yeah, day. Yeah, the wedding the next day. But it's, it's yeah. like a, a morning wedding yeah. um but yeah and it's it's just about being a, a teenage girl for the most part but there there's all these that's the thing is at its heart it is a very john hughes like human being a teenage girl feel, hitting 16 which is supposed to be this like turning point into adulthood but no one is no one is 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 giving you credit for it essentially no she yeah. says you know i thought sweet 16 was supposed to be the big birthday and, and everyone's forgotten mine so like where does that leave you are you an adult and um you know having a crush on a boy at school and being pursued by this this geek but it's it's weird because the main plot line is very realistic and very human and all of the side plot lines are very slapstick inappropriate sex comedy stuff um, so Anthony Michael Hall plays this character just called the geek who is, who has told all of his friends that he and he and, um, and Molly Ringwald are on the same bus route and he's told all his friends that they are basically dating. And so the rest of the movie involves him trying to, trying to get some evidence to prove to his friends that, that he and Molly Ringwald are, are dating. Yeah. Um, and then there's the extremely, extremely problematic storyline of, of, uh, the long duck dong who yeah. is a, Asian exchange student who is um, staying with with the main character's grandparents and and goes out for a drunken night and it is awful. It is just terribly terribly racist. Yeah, um, and and also weirdly sexist. The 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 very much makes fun of the the woman that he ends up um, hooking up with that night. Yeah, it's there's there's it's there's so much problematic stuff going on. But this is this is the I think what is most interesting about this movie is yeah. and there's an ex the the uh, Blake is he Blake I can't keep all Jake. these Jake. Jake I can't Jake. keep all these all these cute boys names in order <laughs> in all these movies they're they're very interchangeable <laughs> yeah um, but uh, yeah he basically trades his passed out drunk girlfriend to Anthony Michael Hall in exchange for uh molly ringwald's underwear so like i said it, it, it's so weird because it is like a national lampoon movie wrapped around an actual human being's story yeah because molly ringwald uh, she the story is that that john hughes was flipping through headshots and saw molly ringwald's headshot and said i want to write this i want to write who i think this is and he wrote 16 candles and 
that part is so real. And I think everyone can relate to that or that feeling of, uh, you know, being a teenager, especially one with siblings and feeling like all of your siblings are overshadowing you and you're supposed to be having all these big monuments of, of growing up and, and they're just all passing you by and you're, you're growing up too fast and you don't know what to do and you don't have guidance and you don't know who to talk to. Like it's all there, but all the wrapping around it is just yeah. oof. Cause it's weirdly an ensemble movie. Like it's actually like a, it's, 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 she's the center of it, but you definitely have, you have the, the geek or farmer Ted and you have Jake and you have, um, the wedding and, and yeah, you have, even you, have, you know we have a couple cutaways to her dad her dad has an arc yeah um in which he he kind of realizes he's gotten too caught up in this wedding and and gets kind of uh disenchanted with with the with the whole wedding process and yeah. and, and recognizes her has, has to step away from it and go oh my gosh i forgot about my other daughter yeah. um yeah so it, it's it's big it, that's it's like a, a big it's like a high school animal house in some ways yeah. But it's just that that he nailed and and I you know I, I was looking at it as that he evolved into Breakfast Club. But now that you've told me he already had Breakfast Club written, I think it, it's definitely that he was trying to he had that that real teen voice that he wanted to use, but he knew that he had to wrap it up in a in a yeah sex comedy to sell it to a studio. Yeah, like he he was purposely doing it and aware of it. Yeah, the issues with with uh long duck dong the big there's a few big issues with long duck dong if you just take out the gong sound oh god every time they mention his name it'd be it'd be better yeah like it would be great but it'd be better um apparently why hughes wrote that character and this is not to defend it but hughes wrote the character poking fun at his actual grandparents who would get foreign exchange students and hughes felt they were patting themselves in the back for hosting these students but they mainly did it for free labor. Yeah, and I mean they they make that joke, but you you, you don't have to make fun of he could Don could be in on the joke. Like, <laughs> well, because like it's not just it's not just one specific like he's not Chinese. It's a mixture of like like he's it's Korean, it's Chinese, it's Japanese. It's like they, it's, they have him dressed well, up in like a samurai racist. costume yeah, at yeah. one point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why it's 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 racist because it's just it's like. It's no specific thing. It's just very generic and stereotypical. Well, and I was, um, I was, you know, just to go into more problems, <laughs> pick this movie apart too hard. But I mean, it, it's something you have to do. And 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 like Molly Ringwald says in in her article, you know, you can. She she's talked to people who she she specifically says she talked to a uh, uh, a gay African American man who said thank you so much for the Breakfast Club, and she said why she said it means so much to me and she said why why would it i and when she said she was really struggling with how white these movies were and how sexist these movies could be and he said it still showed me that there were teenagers who felt out of place and didn't feel like they belonged and that's you know that's and so you can still recognize like i've been saying you can still recognize that human aspect to it but but also fully recognize and call out the other issues and i was talking to my my girlfriend about 16 candles and and she said she watched this this is one of her favorites and and fully recognized and i feel the exact same way i watched a lot of these on tv as a kid and it definitely influences the way you let people treat you and i I think especially if you're if you're a a young girl watching these because a lot of these movies are 
you know, Anthony Michael Hall's character just keeps wearing her down until eventually she's mm-hmm. friendly to him. And it's like, no, that's not how, that's not how as men you can treat women and as women, that's yeah. not how you should allow men to treat you. Or ben, Bender insulting her yeah. in Breakfast Club oh, to yeah. the point where that's... she's like, oh yeah, let's, we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, uh, but Watan, uh, the actor who played uh, Long Duck Dong, uh, uh, Gary Watanabe, he, his point that I read in the, in the book that I read, John Hughes' Life and Film, he had said, I didn't think anything of it at the time because at that point there were no Asian characters in movies. Mm-hmm. There were no role models for Asian characters. So I was just like happy to, to be in the film. And he did say, he goes, I do believe like if time went on, he goes, Hughes like myself, I and mean, we don't know this would have real, like would have realized the mistakes that surrounded that character. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I do think that is something that, that we could at least hope so. And, and, and Ringwald brings it up. She said, I, you know, as a person, I never knew him to say anything yeah. that felt problematic to me. It was just within his writing sometimes. So, so yeah. there's no way to know how much of that was what he felt you needed to include in a, in a Hollywood film at that time. And, and, and there's also no way to know. He, he seems like someone who was very clued into the human experience and yes yeah. and empathetic to people's experiences so so you can hope that you know if he if he were to be working today he would be the kind of person that would recognize that those types of represent representations can hurt people yeah and and the anthony michael hall or the 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 geek and jake trading uh his girlfriend for the underwear because it's ba- it, it comes off as date rape yes that's the thing absolutely it kind of, it comes i mean he literally date. says jake says i could go violate her like he uses the word violate they know that it is wrong yeah and the geek like goes and like takes pictures uh with his friends with john cusack to prove like oh like i was with her the mm-hmm. really part that bothered me this is the part that really bothered me it was the aftermath of when they wake up and they're like oh did we did we do it and she's like i think all right we did and he's like did you enjoy it she goes I have a, I have this weird feeling I did. I'm like, no, you don't yeah. know. This is this it's Yeah, no, they they play it off like they were both blackout drunk, so you can yeah. be like, oh, at least it wasn't full on date rape, which is is still extremely questionable, but you don't have to have they don't have to be a happy couple afterwards. <laughs> that that, that is, was the thing. Because yeah. it kind of reads like, oh, they're gonna be they're gonna date now. It it weirdly reads like Oh, I kind of like this geek guy now because of yeah. this experience I had the night before. That's a They're- very, 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 very problematic. It, it, the same thing happens in uh, in Revenge of the Nerds. The exact same thing happens. And, Probably uh, worse, though. I, I, I don't want to rank what's worse, but that one's like he's disguising himself as someone else yeah no one's but, drunk. But, but it boils down to this idea, and I, I am certain that this has led it's to bad, a yeah. lot of our issues. I don't want to call out nerds. But there, there, and and I think we'll 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 keep coming across this. But I do think something negative that John Hughes brought into the world was the idea of like the friend zone. Yeah, and the like. If I'm nice enough to this girl, eventually she's gonna fall. I can in love get. With me, I can get out of it. Yeah, awful. Yeah. Um, but I think this movie and Revenge of the Nerds both brought up this idea that like if I can just get her to into bed with me then everything will yeah. be fine and we'll I'll be a happy her. couple afterwards. Yeah. And that is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't want this whole thing to be like, this sorry. Is yeah. This is, the, this is the big one. We had, we had, we had to tackle this soon. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it's, I, I do think this is a charming version of a teen sex comedy. It's on, it's on the right, it's on the right path. It, there, 
of of all the of all the awful ones out there, what I think what we keep coming back to is he was working within a, a terrible medium, but started yeah. to have this like, wow, I can break out of this, and I can do what I feel like teens really want to see because essentially. Yeah. I think one of the articles we read says that he, you know, these, these other movies were playing to boys. Um, and yes, and boys is used not in the term of like males, but also just like 13 year olds. Yeah. And, and he really wanted to actually hit like 16 year olds. And, and a lot of these movies were playing below that. They, they weren't really playing to like, you are 16 what do you really need to hear right now? And that's what he was, he was starting to get his finger on that pulse at this point. And breakfast club is where he really, I think hits it. The last thing I will say about 16 candles about a, the scene. I like the opening scene with her when she's like talking in the mirror, which feels like an early version of Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. Where you, you'll have a lot of this in his movies where you'll have characters just talking to themselves where she's like, yeah, he has, he has Anthony Michael Hall break the fourth wall at one point and 16 yes. candles, which is very Ferris Bueller. Yeah, it actually happens a lot in his movies, I noticed. Um, no, it's but she's like, chronologically, you're 16, but like physically, you're still 15. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of just like this day, like I'm still the same person I was yesterday. Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed. And I think that's the, cr- the, the, the heart of the story. Chronologically, you're 16 today. Physically? You're still 15. <sighs> Hopeless. Nope. I look exactly the same as I have since summer. Utterly forgettable. No, I didn't expect to wake up transformed. I just thought that turning 16 would be so major that I'd wake up with an improved mental state that would show in my face. All it shows, they don't have any sort of a tan left. I better get downstairs. My family's probably pissed off I haven't let them wish me happy birthday yet. All right, I see it's cool. You need four inches of bod and a great birthday. Moving on to the Breakfast Club, because I don't want to spend too much time on 16 Candles. Um, <laughs> so he moves on to Breakfast Club, originally called Detention. This is a little bit of brief history on the film. He he knew he wanted to cast Ringwald and Hall because of 16 Candles. He knew he wanted to cast a young actress who had auditioned for 16 Candles to play Samantha's older sister, and that was Ali Sheedy. Then he had Estevez, Amelia Estevez, who's in the movie, plays Bender, or was, was read for Bender, but plays Andrew. And quickly, for those that haven't seen Breakfast Club, before I get into Dred Nelson's uh, stuff, is about five students who have Saturday morning detention and they're all from different social classes. And basically the entire, they're stuck together in a room. And in that time they begin to bond and, and realize the similarities they have, even though they have such major differences in terms of their social class. But for the role of Bender played by the ended up being played by Jed Nelson, they originally cast John Cusack, but the cast and director really fought and said he's too midwestern and conservative he's not threatening enough we got to cast this other guy i mean yeah because that, that would also be a tough sale coming off of him playing a, a, a nerd, nerd. In 16 yeah. Candles. they also looked at nick cage for bender could definitely see that one sean penn 
and Rob Lowe. I would not buy Rob Lowe's Bender. I'm sorry. But they cast. They cast so apparently, the, there's a funny story of him auditioning where they come to audition. He's basically comes in and like kind of the a similar outfit as what Bender wears in the movie. And he, they say he's just like prowling the uh, like the uh, the casting office. He's like grabbing stuff off people's desk, banging it on the desk, and they're like, "Who is this guy?" Someone needs to call security because this guy is just like being very difficult. And then someone walks out, and goes, uh, Judd Nelson goes, Hey, and walks in. And basically, he gets the part because he's so in character and then almost gets fired a week into shooting because he's too much in character. Because yep. <laughs> he was treating Molly Ringwald poorly, like as they're like just all the time. And Hughes got very upset by it because Hughes was kind of protective of her coming off of 16 candles and she was kind of his muse is what it was so yeah what were your thoughts in re-watching the breakfast club the breakfast club was it was a movie i liked a lot when i was younger um i used to watch a lot on television it was one of those that i did not realize until i was older that how how mature it was because so much yeah. of it was cut for her tv yep um but i really did not remember how just kind of like morose it was until this last rewatch. I, I I don't know. I honestly don't know what I remembered it as, but it was something that I had put off in my head. And and I think, you know, when you think Hughes, I particularly, when I think Hughes, I think Ferris Bueller. And, and so breakfast club was something I'd filed away in my head as John Hughes. And as a coming of age, a teen comedy. And it's not, it's not that funny. No, it's not. It's it's really mostly a drama and and yeah. it's just a lot of it's just five teenagers sitting around talking about how much it sucks to be a teenager and and from all these different you know they they all have different problems but it all, all it all boils down to like what adults expect out of you. Yeah. Um and and that's what they ultimately touch on is like they all it's all about expectation and and having to put on what is expected of you. But uh, it's dark and I did not remember that um if you had asked me last week before i rewatched it i would not have recalled and i could remember you know master strokes of it and i could i could remember that that anthony michael hall had a had a suicide attempt and that judd nelson was abused and like i that was all in my head but i didn't put it all together to just remember the the stuff you remember is the dancing the dance sequence and the, 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 smoke, and the smoking the, weed or whatever yeah, and the mess with the boy you get the horns you just bought yourself another week's of detention you know two months two months bender your mind which is also funny because be, when you remember ferris bueller specifically in the breakfast club is hughes is probably like two biggest teen films you remember the like awful teacher and you forget how good he was at writing like sympathetic adult characters and all of his other movies you have like good it, I, I mean, the usually it's like a relationship with a father that's that's strained, but then in the end they come together. But there's a lot of examples of like teachers that care about the students and parents yeah. that actually care about their kids and want the best for them. But uh, but the two his two like teacher characters that really stick out are probably this character and and the principal and Rooney and yeah. Rooney. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I I think uh, Vernon would get fired after this movie. <laughs> like personally, like. For not just because like everything's destroyed in the library, they're tearing up books and smells like weed and everything. Uh, the glass is shattered in, in 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 one of the rooms because Emilio Estevez's scream. Mm. Uh, but the big thing he he 
if it came out that he locked a student in a closet, no yeah. matter how bad the student was, he tried to fist fight him, he'd he'd be fired. Yeah. He would be fired. Because <laughs> here's the interesting part about this movie. Because with that, because they'd be like, oh, like no one believed Bender. The issue is the issue is with that is that everyone is on Bender's side in this movie. This is what makes this movie really unique to me. I see it as a war film. You say a war film or a prison film because they all hate Bender. Mm -hmm. They all hate Bender. But the moment, like very beginning, they still hate Bender has shown nothing that he is a good person at the beginning of the movie. They still defend him. And they're, they're well, and the, the scene with the, you know, you just bought yourself another. They're all looking at him like, stop, dude. Like, yeah, like, what, are what are you doing? <laughs> but it's like, it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, uh why that door shut? Uh, screws fall out. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, yeah, a screw fall out. And they're like, we were all sitting here. Nothing happened. They could easily throw Bender under the bus and they choose not to because to them, the common enemy is Vernon or adults in this movie. Mm -hmm. And why I say it's a war film, because they're all it's it's us against them is the total mentality. You could argue it's a prison movie and he's the warden or whatever. But the key is like they're whistling and bring this back up. They're whistling the theme, the bridge and the river Kwai mm -hmm. when they're all in the uh, the, um, the, fir the, the first time together. they like they they all work kind of work bond. together as, yeah, as a group just, just to whistle they're just that whistling, song. Yeah. Whistling that song. And then Vernon comes in. That's when all hell breaks loose. But like they somehow realize just even the beginning, they still realize there's some sort of connection between them because they all hate this guy. They all hate authority. Um, they all, un I think they all on a subconscious level understand they don't like their parents. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, we're we've talked about privacy in this, in this, uh, this month about coming of age films. Mm -hmm. And the first obstacle is the door. Yeah. The first thing Bender says then was like, we got to get that door closed mm -hmm. and like, give us some privacy. Basically. That's, the, that's the first, that's their first victory. And that's a, that's a big bonding experience for all of them. What do you say we close that door? We can't have any kind of party with Vernon checking us out every few seconds. Well, you know, the door's supposed to stay open. So what? So why don't you just shut up? There's four other people in here, you know? God, you can count. See, I knew you had to be smart to be a, a wrestler. Who the hell are you to judge anybody anyway? Really? You know, Bender, you don't even count. I mean, if he disappeared forever, it wouldn't make any difference. He may as well not even exist at this school. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that was, if, if the, the, I mean, we had, we had at, at our school, we had ISS, which was in school suspension and you just sat, but you, at, you, at least then they, they like brought your schoolwork to you. Yeah. And you could like sit and do your schoolwork. I cannot imagine just nine hours of just sitting there doing absolutely nothing <laughs> No Not movement, no talking. You can go to the bathroom at certain bathroom breaks. That's wild. Yeah, I no, I, I yeah, that'd be rough. We my, had sorry school, but I don't think it was. I think it was like you had to clean up the school is what yeah. you had to do. Yeah, you had to do stuff like this is just yeah. yeah torture. But I, my biggest surprise coming back to it was I, you know, when I was watching it and I was younger and I wasn't really watching it critically. I just I understood that this was like a pop culture touchstone. And coming back now, I'm just really surprised that it was. Because like you said, it is so play-like. It is a hangout movie. It is all dialogue. Very little action. Very little jokes. Like we were talking, this is such a huge jump from 16 Candles to this. And there, there's stuff now that we remember as funny because we all have shared like the, like, hey, son, are you ready to go fishing? Like, that's not laugh. 
that's not laugh out loud like when you're watching it but it's some it's become this pop culture currency and and now you know it's funny to go back and watch it but it, it it's really truly surprising to me how successful this movie was with teenagers yeah being mostly just a drama a dialogue filled drama all it takes is gonna be t- it's gonna be two hits me hitting you you hitting the floor <laughs> like it be that it became a lot of like there it's weirdly like hearing some of the hughes films like watching the hughes films and and seeing how some vernacular just became a part of like just our vernacular i I just lines that were said or things or slang that was used was vernacular that's used in our everyday lives now in some way or or when we're in high school i mean even the don't you forget about me the song was like made for the movie like yeah was written for the movie originally supposed to be done by the pretenders by the way and then it was done by i think uh the lead singer's uh fiance or or boyfriend who is in simple minds yeah it is kind of surprising because of the the musical sequence feel very mtv influence at that point where they're like hey we gotta we gotta appeal to the kids in some way we're gonna have Emilio Estevez do cartwheels around the the library that that is the part that is the weakest to me the whole smoking weed and um and Estevez doing a whole gymnastics routine around the library and and the biggest library that you've ever seen in a school before (laughs) yeah it's uh but what's interesting about this movie is how when you find out how collaborative the movie was so apparently hughes is everyone kind of has this this uh mythology around hughes that he would write a screenplay in five days and that would be it that was the one you would shoot and and in some cases it was a lot of times he'd write the first draft in that amount of time but then he would constantly redo it and so what happened at one point he had written multiple drafts of breakfast club and Estevez was like, well, how many drafts are there? And they go, oh, there's a couple. Well, can we can we read them all? And so basically all the actors gathered with Hughes, got all the scripts, went through the scripts and picked apart the lines that had been cut from previous drafts and put it in the script. And he was copying, pasting, and then came back the next morning with this whole new draft. The one big part that I know was cut and then added back was Estevez's speech in the circle about why he's there and they added it back. And that's one of, it's very dramatic, but it is one of Estevez's probably best mm-hmm. acting scenes in the movie. Yeah. yeah um, also one big change, apparently that the, uh, that Sheedy Ringwald and one of the female producers fought on. There was no janitor char- character initially. It was a female gym teacher that there was like a synchronized swimming team. I think Ringwald talks about this in, in her thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was showing a female gym teacher topless is what it was. I think it was either the kids or it was Vernon. It was Vernon. Who was like, Ringwald was, said it was Vernon spying on her, which is why he got, why he like runs off and leaves them. But um, yeah, again, that, that feels kind of like, you know, if you're Hughes and you've been at, at Lampoon and you've worked on those movies, it feels like something you're you know there, there's when you're within the hollywood system there's you know these check check boxes you have to hit yeah, yeah. like you know we all know for the past 10 years there was the there's got to be a giant portal open in the sky like in every action <laughs> movie kind of thing like there's just some things you know you have to hit and i think yeah. that's what he you know we see it with 16 candles we see it with weird science like he felt like there had to be some like sexual appeal to it and 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 ringwald says yeah she, she and sheedy were both like openly against it and he and he cut it and um i do think it would kind of cheapen the movie for sure and and it would take away the the kind of timelessness that the movie does have and i think the janitor character is interesting because it adds this like outside perspective who's kind of again this kind of will come up a little bit in uncle buck 
where it's this adult character that has a read both on the adults and the kids. Mm -hmm. And that's the janitor. Originally, it was supposed to be Rick Moranis, by the way. I don't know if you heard this. He he, he showed up, actually shot scenes, had uh, really short hair, gold caps in his teeth, and spoke in a very thick Russian accent. <laughs> that's a little much. And they got the dailies and the studio called about like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. And they go, you have to fire him. He goes, I can't fire Rick Moranis. Well, you got to fire him. So they fire Rick Moranis and they get John uh, Kapalos, who actually was in three Hughes films. He was in uh, 16 Candles as the as the um, the guy that her sister's going to marry. And he mm -hmm. pops up in Weird Science as well. Um, but I really think. I know Fer Ferris Bueller is a great film, but I really think this really showcases Hughes's directing style. Like the very subtle things he can do. Like the one thing I noticed I found out was the costume design and the design of the movie, how all the characters are color coded. Hmm. When you look at it, is that Andrew Emilio Estevez is in blue and white. He's a jock. So his colors are the colors of the school. Bender is red uh claire is pink allison is black and uh brian is kind of this like green brand like green color basically and so they're all color-coded and the background the whole idea was the library which is kind of like concrete very bland neutral color so these characters really pop when they're in that setting and he all, he wrote that all in his notes like while making the script so it was, like, it was very well planned out so what are the problems with this movie <laughs> this is gonna be a three-hour episode <laughs> I, know, I know i'm sorry there's i mean there's definitely some some dated there, there's there's homophobic slurs used in it there's yeah. some racial slurs used in it um anthony he he was an anthony michael hall have this thing where they use african-american vernacular english um, yeah anthony michael hall does like vocal blackface for for two movies back to back we'll see it again in weird science and it's 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 just kind of weird it doesn't need to be there whatsoever the big thing is the is the basically sexual assault yeah and, and then there's the con continued sexual harassment and sexual assault by bender yeah. on claire which yeah. we as, as the film ends up showing is i mean i think the, the lesson of the movie is they all learn that everyone else has a heart of gold like regardless of of what they put on but yeah. I think what it what it continues to show what Sixteen Candles taught and what this continues to show is if you're a jerk to women, eventually you'll wear them down. Yeah, and that's what happens. She like shows up and it's like uh, she kisses him. He's like, "Why did you do that?" Because I knew you wouldn't. It's very yeah. Mm -hmm. And and Ringwald even says it in her article as well about like for a while after this, I, I assumed that that's how all interactions not it was like that's how like men should be to women she's always attracted to the bad boy because of that mm -hmm. uh thing even though she did date anthony michael hall during breakfast club by the way which is the <laughs> which is the reason this is also very weird the reason why hugh stopped working one of the reasons why hugh stopped working with her was because of like that and her her wanting to go work with other directors he didn't mm -hmm. really and the same with anthony michael hall they both want to go work with other directors and he wasn't a huge fan of that. He and this happened with everyone. He didn't get why they wanted to go off and make other movies. Let's yeah, just I mean, stay in Chicago and make if, films. If you're you're him and you're openly saying like, "Hey, I'm writing these parts for you," yeah. um, I can I can see why I I don't agree with it, but I can see why if you were in his head, you can be like, "Hey, I'm I'm writing these parts for you." Like I he you you know we'll get to some kind of wonderful, but it's like, "Hey, this is for you." And yeah, she's yeah. like, "I want to go do other stuff." You you can see someone, especially a a 
you know, creative person taking that as an insult. Yeah. Uh, do these people, do these characters talk again after this movie? I mean, I hope so. that's, that's the, that's the big final conflict, right? They've all become friends again. They've all become friends. And then it's like, are we going to talk to each other on Monday? And it breaks them apart again. Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't exist. I, Hughes exists in this world where uh, more than any other movie, more than any other type of high school movie, Hughes's universe the the lines the click lines are so tightly drawn yeah i think yeah they absolutely talk to each other because that was my high school experience you the burnouts talk to the jocks um but within his world i don't know i mean that's um specifically pretty and pink and some kind of wonderful it's like we cannot talk you are yeah. you are rich i am not yeah he 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 definitely saw that and i think he he was i think he's the person who really like set that standard for a lot of the movies in the 90s too because if you go back to like happy days um even like grease you know the the greasers and the you know everybody's we, we talked about it with um with american graffiti like yeah there was still this like click social fluidity and, and then i think you see hughes come along and you get that idea of like i can't be seen talking to you kind of thing what's your favorite scene in the movie before we move on to to weird science i really like you know once they get to once they get like really deep and they're all sitting in the circle just kind of sharing yeah. their deepest darkest sequence secrets um you know that he like he lets a lot of it play out in one shot so he gives kind of everybody their like big moment to be like this is what's wrong with me um and estevez is great in that anthony michael hall is great in that and they i think they they play off the the and this is a weird part of this movie like they, they talk about anthony michael hall like planning to kill himself and then it's like it was a flare gun and it went off in my locker and blew my locker up and, and they all start laughing and it's you know it it doesn't cheapen the moment at all like they still all understand what he's going through but it, it does help you get out of this like very very deep dark place that it just went went to and and they, there's a very I, I i really love in hall's performance when they all start laughing it like holds on him and you show him like realize it's okay to laugh at it um and i think that's that's a really nice moment even if i ace the rest of the semester i'm still only a b and everything's ruined for me brian my options you know no killing yourself is not an option well i didn't do it did i no i don't think so it was a handgun no it was a flare gun it went off in my locker <laughs> it's not funny <clears throat> I did to get in here? Nothing. I didn't have anything better to do. <laughs> You're laughing at me. No! Yeah, you are. So yeah, moving on to weird science. I don't have much to say about weird science. Yeah, I think we can blow through weird science. Like I said, I, I, I read it more as a as his kind of 
parody of the like teen sex dramas more than whereas 16 candles feels like it's kind of held down by it this at least feels like kind of his commentary yeah on on, yeah those and and especially on movies like risky business where it's it's like oh my life got turned upside down by this gorgeous woman and this is like literally like no you don't understand i have a nuclear bomb in my house like uh i i think it i think it takes that that conceit which there were a lot of like knockoffs of that risky business formula happening at the time and and we've kind of lost the context of that since you've got risky business you've got weird science but i mean there was there was uh uh mannequin you know all these yeah, ones yeah. that are just like this gorgeous woman who has like no desire other than to be with me is gonna make my life crazy tonight and and i, I think weird science is kind of a tongue-in-cheek take on that but yeah. um yeah we, we've we've covered it uh <laughs> a little bit my, bill paxton's hilarious bill paxton's great fun i like kelly the brock i'm kelly the brock's very charming she's, in it. Yeah. she's very good in it. i'm, I'm surprised i'm it's a little shocking she didn't do as much after this movie uh, I want to bring it real quick. There's a very bad trope in this movie <laughs> that happened a lot. And it's very Nash Lampoon's thing. And it happened in a lot of 70s and 80s movies. And it's where white people walk into a predominantly black bar and everyone stops and turns. Mm-hmm. And like music scratches, it's silence. And usually a white character goes, I think we're in the wrong place. <laughs> or I think in Animal House, it's we're dead. Like it's like, it, it's just very questionable well shout out um uh shout out 48 hours for for flipping that um. you're right yeah they do i think around the same time around the same may a little bit before uh yeah and it also just has lack of parents uh yeah not much said about weird science feel free to go see except except i I will say one thing about weird science and john hughes john hughes as much as he was tapped into um to the teenage voice i appreciate that he often tried to involve uh technology in his movies but i don't think john hughes <laughs> understood computers oh no not at all not <laughs> at all that that was the thing about the 80s man you could just like make up stuff in the script of like oh this will happen because not everyone like if you're in com- into computers you're a nerd and that's mm-hmm. actually kind of brought from ferris bueller transition mm-hmm. uh where he's just like oh cool i can hack into the school mainframe Yep. From from my from my home computer and change my absences. I got a I got a computer instead of a car, and then it ends up like working in his advantage. That's yeah, that's, that's kind of the. I mean, that's the beauty of of Ferris is he is from given to us by the man who drew those hard lines of clicks so intensely yeah. in Breakfast Club in Sixteen Candles. The Ferris is everything. Ferris yeah. is not a jock, but he everyone loves him. No, Ferris doesn't fit into any of those categories really. But yeah. for some reason, he's the most popular guy in school, and it's it's kind of bizarre and it's weird that someone who was so obsessed with clicks also created this character that was like clickless. He 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 he, he ascended above clicks. I love I love it. it's Ferris is everything. I like that line. Ferris is everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, yeah, it's it's uh it's also probably one of Hughes's most visual films. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tak Fushimoto, who was a, a DP for Silence of the Lambs, also shot uh some kind of wonderful or I think he shot Pretty some kind pink. of wonderful of Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of his most visual films. I think Broderick's great. This is one of the big ones where. I think he wrote Ferris Bueller in five days because there was a writer strike looming 
mm-hmm. in 85 due to like the home video market and Hughes had just signed this huge contract at Paramount and they're like hey we just gave you a lot of money can you write a script can you give us a script real quick so he wrote it in five days it got greenlit that week and then started pre-production the next week also a much longer version of the, the movie about two hours and 45 minutes uh, no, apparently it was it was more in line with the breakfast club it was more darker it was darker and it does definitely their... it takes a turn in the third act for sure yeah um where you're just like oh i did not see this coming and it, i mean it doesn't it doesn't feel uh, that's probably not the right way to it doesn't feel out of left field especially with like cameron like you see it festering um in cameron throughout and, and it just kind of explodes but it works because of Cameron, yeah. Alan Ruck is great in this movie. Yeah, and shout out Alan Ruck, especially because Hughes was someone who was known for casting teenagers yeah. in teenage roles and was kind of like vocally anti like casting 30-year-olds as teenagers. Yeah. But but Ruck was, I guess, was just that good for the part because he was 27, 28. He was, he was, old, he yeah, was, he was older, yeah. Um, but is the heart and soul of this movie there i I was listening to a podcast recently and they said is this ferris's movie or is this cameron's movie and and i think what they what they ultimately came up with is it it really depends on who you as the viewer or feel closer to and some people think they're a ferris even though i feel like most of us are cameron's but (laughs) yeah i think i mean cameron is like well the thing is cameron i think has the arc he's Mm -hmm. the one who's like oh i'm not gonna like i don't want to go against my parents blah blah and then at the very end, when when the car gets destroyed, it's just kind of like, screw it, I'll deal with it. Like he mm-hmm. he's finally standing up for himself. And Ferris is kind of the same throughout. Yeah, uh, I think Ferris is his is Hughes's most fun movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 probably the least problematic one. Yeah, uh, I think the most problematic part is one of the actresses in the movie, and that's Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that's because of of of, uh, of his his uh, personal life choices that are that are very wrong. Um, we won't go into it, um, but yeah, it's 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 a fun film. I we actually showed this. They showed this uh, at my high school on like senior day. We had like a senior movie day. We watched in the auditorium. People did not get this movie by like no one really liked it. And I'm like, what do you mean what? you don't like it? It's amazing. They're like. Also, yeah, if you're a senior to... in high school, you've never seen Ferris Bueller. What's what's happening? Yeah, I, I like our, yeah. People can't be like, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really get that movie. I'm like, ah, what's there to get? It's, yeah, I don't, it's amazing. I don't, I don't understand you guys whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a quick thing. Cause do you have anything else you want to say about Ferris Bueller? I mean, I think it's we could do a whole episode on Ferris Bueller. I, I, I kind of want to keep it short because it is it's iconic. It's huge. I, it's my, it's my favorite out of the, these movies for sure. Okay. It's um, it's the one it's the one I think you can you can plug in and not have to worry about like the issues of the eighties if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and I, I think it holds. Yeah, absolutely, it holds up the best. It feels universal, and and Broderick is fantastic in it. You know, and it's yeah. one of those things. I was I was talking to somebody recently about Broderick's career and and how he started by playing someone who was just so cool and had not a care in the world. And then turned into a character, uh, an actor who is really a character actor who is almost always neurotic. Yeah, like that that is that became. And they said, I don't know of anyone who's ever had that that type of career other than him. And I was like, uh, Henry Winkler. Yeah, big time. You go from the coolest guy on television 
to like the nerdiest old man you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it handled it in, insanely well. Like, is yeah. great at doing. It was great at being the Fonz, and was great. Is great at being you know the uh, the, the the lawyer on Arrested Development or whatever you want to point to. The, in act, his, in his... the, the acting teacher on Barry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's someone when you when you look back at the, some of the people they were trying. You know, Tom Cruise was was in the conversation at one point for Ferris, and it's like. Yeah, who could have done that but Broderick? But also, then he never. But then he never did it again. He like never recaptured Ferris. Like if Ferris was this one off. It just happened there. It was Broderick. It was Hughes. It was it was Chicka Chicka, boom boom. Like it was, <laughs> everything all came together to make Ferris Ch- Chicka Chicka boom boom. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like that scene when they're in the the art museum and 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 they're they're just like staring at the paintings and Cameron's like, I get I, I get this one. Like it's it it's something wholly on its own and it's 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 hard to dissect ferris um you know it's something that has become kind of like groundhog day it's this little comedy that has now become like a, a life mantra to some people it's become almost religious and it, it's yeah it's, it's life, weird. life moves pretty fast sometimes yeah I, I i quoted that in my high school graduation speech oh did you really oh uh, yeah class historian <laughs> that's amazing you fake a stomach cramp and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I do have a test today. That wasn't bullshit. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They can be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. Moving on to the Howard Deutsch, John Hughes collaboration. Two of these I, I want to talk a little about. The third one, uh, we can just, yeah, it's okay. But first up, Pretty in Pink. Because Pretty in Pink is one that I think a lot of people feel, feel John Hughes directed if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like it's one, because it's Molly Ringwald, it's the music. I, I think even Deutsch said that, that Hughes controlled most of the soundtrack. So Pretty in Pink is about Andy, who is this young young woman, who I think is in her senior year of high school. And she is, to use a, a cliche, is she's on the wrong side of the tracks, but in a-, in a Literally. High sc- literally is on the it, wrong side of the yeah, tracks. Yeah, There are actual train tracks. It's like that, that line from Lady That's Bird. Lady Bird, same <laughs> that line. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, you know, Greta Garwood watched them like, okay, I want to do everything that this one does, but way better. And <laughs> yeah, um, Annie Potts is great in this film, but yeah. Uh, oh, I know. I love ba- Annie Potts so much. Annie Potts she is amazing. She is fantastic in this. Should this should this just be an Annie Potts uh, podcast? I mean, we, when we did Texasville, we were just like that Annie Potts is the only reason to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 Annie Potts. You know what? Annie Potts, let's applaud her. Um, so... Uh, Andy is a young woman in high school who is on the wrong side of the tracks. Her best friend is this very, I don't want to say flamboyant, eccentric character, Ducky, played by John Cryer. And uh, Andy is asked out by Andrew McCarthy, who I'm blanking on his name for some reason, but is... Uh, Blake? Is, is that Blake? Bla- Blaine? Blake. Oh my... Bla- no, I think it was Blaine. That's oh why God. I was getting Blake and, Bla- and Blaine mixed up when I was trying to say Jake earlier. Yeah, it was Blaine. And then uh, James Spader is Steph. And uh, and one more, one more. You got to shout out Harry Dean Stanton plays her father, 
who is also the 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 father of the brat pack which... apparently yep <laughs> found that out in the article that the that we read about i, the brat I pack. had seen that be- actually i that i had turned that up when i was researching my, who i was going to cast last week for ladybird i was i was looking i was poking around at brat pack stuff and they were like yeah they all harry dean stanton was like the mentor for all of them which is so bizarre <laughs> so crazy um so yeah so pretty and pink so it's it's a it's kind of about this uh so she starts dating blaine who's this rich guy she's up from a poor family her mother is is non-existent she left molly ringwald definitely we haven't talked about this but she i think she improves with each film mm-hmm. like you see a different side of her in all three of these films which i find really nice but it's definitely this is Hughes. This and the next one, some kind of wonderful, are Hughes' two films that he's trying to tackle the class struggle and the class difference within teenagers. Um, so, what were your thoughts on Pretty in Pink? Had you, had you watched Pretty in Pink before this episode? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I I had called it. It was one of those things. It used to be on VH1 and MTV. There, there right. were scenes scenes from Pretty in Pink that I thought were from Sixteen Candles, and scenes from Sixteen <laughs> Candles that I thought were from Pretty in Pink. Um, uh, I, I don't know that I've ever sat down and said, I'm going to watch pretty in pink now. Uh, yeah. Did not realize how similar it was to some kind of wonderful. Um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Very. it a little bit more, but they are pretty much the same script taken a little bit differently. Um, uh, did, was not a huge ducky fan. I know there was like nope. a big, there was a big movement when this movie came out that was like, Oh, she should have been with ducky. And maybe it's that I'm, I'm just <laughs> over, I'm over the yeah. like friend zone trope. I'm over the like sad sack best guy yeah. friend who's secretly in love over it um all ducky does is act like an asshole this whole movie yep. and, and feels i like would he say deserves, for, the, for at least the for, for at least three-fourths of the movie and feels like he deserves to be loved because yeah. of it um yeah i, I, I do love the reading ringwald says that ducky was based on her best friend who came out of the closet years later and that she believes ducky the character is gay i think there's there's truth to i think you can definitely see it in this 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 character who and I've, I've known people like this when they were in the closet that felt like they you know felt a very intense friend love for a a person of the opposite gender and felt like they needed to express it as romantic love and didn't realize until years later that it was it was a it was a combination of of, of a lot of different things and the pressures to try and be heteronormative but <laughs> that's going a little deeper into pretty and pink than i intended to okay ducky can i propose something to you without you getting upset or angry mm, that depends on what i don't know i just said that good i propose that you're deliberately flunking your courses so that you can stay in high school yeah here why, why, why would i do that i don't know you tell me well i'm not so <laughs> there's nothing to tell well you know you're not always one to face things What's since when? What, what am I not facing? The future. Well, whether or not you face the future, it happens, right? You run yourself down. Why do you do that? I'm not running myself down. You think I'm running my... I don't think I'm running myself down. Why? Be- because because the way I dress? Because I can laugh at myself? That's called a sense of humor. You should get one. They're nice. What are we going to do next year? Well, according to you, I'll still be in high school. No, I'm serious. I mean, not a day has passed in, what, eight years where I didn't see you or talk to you at least 20 times? Well, that's devotion. I know. Even though I sometimes get angry, you know that I secretly love it. You see, I knew that. You know, I hope I'm not the only in the world that knows what an incredible person you are. Well, at this point in time, I'm afraid you are, honey. All of Hughes is... Here's the thing. Hughes was great at writing 
his leads, but like his love interests in a lot of the maybe he was just not great at writing like like hot boys because I I do think um, <laughs> I I do think you know Ferris's girlfriend um, uh, oh Sloan Sloan, Sloan. I, I think Sloan is 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 great and um, and I, and I I actually really enjoy I think it's weird because Pretty in Pink is considered in the like trifecta i think because molly ringwald is in it it's like yeah, Pretty yeah. pink 16 candles breakfast club is like hughes i i do think he the script for some kind of wonderful is better i think he improved upon the Pretty see i pink agree script. i agree with you i agree yeah. with you completely on that um and a lot of people because some kind of wonderful is the forgotten john hughes movie i've always said this like in terms of like a writer i think he the i think drama. he improves we, we can just transition into some kind of wonderful well i will say this, <laughs> uh, real quick uh ducky yeah it was supposed to be robert, or ringwald won robert Downey jr for ducky mm-hmm. and they cast uh john crier originally they wanted jennifer bills for ringwald's character because she was the hot thing at that point after flash dance yeah uh i think I, I I don't like the 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 friendship between Ducky and uh, Andy at all. I, I I mean he has the great I love the Otis Redding scene in mm-hmm. Pretty in Pink, but I just think the I think what what Hughes it, if it's a test run for some kind of wonderful. I honestly feel like that. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think in some kind of wonderful he handles the class difference and he handles the um, love triangle way more he, he handles he, it so he much flushes out the two supporting characters so exactly. much better um so yeah. and some kind of wonderful is eric stoltz as the main character and he has a he has a longtime crush on amanda who jones. played amanda jones yeah played by leah thompson and his best friend watts is played by mary stewart masterson who is kind of like a tomboy a punk and you know as the film goes on he he goes out with amanda he finds and, and she what i think he really does well is he fleshes out the Blaine role and the Ducky role so much better in yeah. some kind of wonderful. And, and so we really get to know Watts as someone who feel cause Ducky, they bring it up a couple of times that Ducky is like, we're poor. You should be with me because we're poor, but, but you don't really feel like how Ducky feels about being poor other than he thinks it gives him a sense of ownership over, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> over Andy. But you, with Watts, you, you see how, what a tight kinship she feels to, um, I can't think of. There's so many teen names I'm supposed to keep track of in this this episode. <laughs> Give me a uh, second. It's, Eric yeah, Stoltz's it's, character. It's Eric Stoltz's character. Um, because they, they and, and you get the feeling that the two of them feel alienated in this school. In both these movies, Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful, they're both going to schools in which they are the minority as far as like income yep. and 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 family status. And and I think Some Ke- Kind of Wonderful Keith, sells Keith, you a Keith little bit his more. Name. Keith, Keith, name, yeah. Keith, I think yeah. some kind of wonderful sells you a little bit more on the idea that like the they are they are so close because they have both grown up as the poor kids at this school. Yeah, and and it also does a great job with Amanda and, yeah. and like realizing her own privilege and also finding her own self worth outside of being popular and rich and 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 going out with Keith. Yeah, I think it, it handles the the triangle so much better because when I'm yeah. watching. Watching Pretty in Pink, I'm like, I definitely don't want to end up with Ducky, but I also kind of don't really don't, like Blaine. Blaine, yeah, exactly. Same. <laughs> and, and this one, at the end of Some Kind of Wonderful, you're like, I, I really, truly like everyone in this movie. Yeah, yeah I, I, I feel for all everyone. I feel for what everyone is going through, and honestly, would be fine if Keith and Amanda ended up together. And and Amanda has a really great moment where she says, she had said before, like, I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right reasons. 
and she has she's the one who realizes that Watts and Keith are in love with each other and she says I I've realized now I'd rather just be alone I want to I want to try being on my own um yeah I I had never seen this one actually I had caught caught pieces of it I knew I knew of it as the movie that that the um the Howie Deutsch and and, and um Clay Thompson Clay Thompson yeah. got together on eventually <laughs> giving the world Zoe Deutsch uh later on <laughs> but um <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think, and like I said before, this is just a drama. It's it's not really making any attempts to be a comedy. And you you can kind of see here, you know, the the story has always been that that Stoltz was was fired from Back to the Future because he was a little too intense for Marty. And you can see it here; he's very intense <laughs> in this movie. When he's like the part when he's walking towards the train at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. like the the opening the opening sequence in this film, when it's it's cutting between all three characters very very well, mm-hmm. but it's just like you're in a weird world yeah they're like, like this is not this is not ferris bueller guys strap no in. it's like mary stewart masters banging on the drums amanda jones is like getting ready for school and eric stoltz is walking towards train like mm-hmm. and 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 it's weirdly also it's not because it's not directed by john hughes i would argue this might be the most visual film from the hughes canon yeah like because opening, pretty and pink yeah. pretty and pink tries to sell you the whole time on on ducky and and um and that's what Hughes wanted Hughes wanted it to be ducky and and, and uh and andy at the end of the movie together but it also tries to like sell you on them being poor the whole time but visually i don't think it ever like gets it across to you and this some kind of wonderful feels grimy like, yeah it does like he's keith always has like dirty hands and they go to these like punk clubs that are just kind of like dirty and and and, and crowded and th- this is the first one to kind of get rid of the like shine that, that a lot of the 80s movies had and be like this is the, these these kids are from the wrong side of the tracks for real for real this time it's a big outlier in the hughes canon for one it's i think it's the only teen movie and one of the few films he wrote that does not pl- take place in chicago it mm. takes place yeah. in los angeles mm-hmm. yeah, i think pretty in, i think pretty in pink is set in chicago but shot in la but some kind of wonderful is like it is la through and through mm. and what they're doing it's also one of the few films where hughes's teen teen character late teen character has a goal in life like when you think about it mm-hmm. keith wants to be an artist or a painter a little bit like john hughes's dad and he keeps it kind of in secret and so he's a painter that's what he wants to do but when you look at all the hughes teen canon you don't really know what anyone wants to do you don't mm-hmm. really know what ferris wants to do you don't know like what any of the anyone from the breakfast club wants to do as a career but this is very like hey i'm an artist watts is a drummer like you're kind of like there it's, there's this artful creative quality it's in all these characters and pretty in pink kind of has it with andy as kind of this like fashion designer or that's like kind of what her 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 her, her uh passion is but it's more present in this film and weirdly real quick about this movie about some kind of wonderful of how it got made john crier was on pretty in pink and he's like hey to john to hughes he's like i like this thing you wrote in nash lampoons about this kid who's a spy and he's like i will you, you should make a movie with that he's like, oh really I, I thought about that let me go do it so he writes a draft and he keeps writing it and it becomes some kind of wonderful <laughs> there's no kid spy in this movie just somehow it became that and Cryer's like Cryer, he's like can i read the final script because i didn't cast it well like what's like what's it like and he goes what the hell is this like it's pretty in pink 2.0 why do you want to do this again you know 
I do have to shout out. I think my favorite performance of of any of these movies that I've rewatched, uh, other than like you know Ferris Bueller and like that, yeah, I yeah. had so much fun with Elias Codius in this. Movie. He's great. He is great. <laughs> he is great. And so yeah, he is phenomenal. Well, in that they character. set him up like the, the opening scene. You're like, oh, here's the bully. This is like the bad guy in the movie. And then they have this like little montage where they become friends in detention. And then he's just so. And I read. I I, I like. I did some research because I was having such a blast with him. And they said a lot of his lines were improvised. Um, yeah, they, they were. He was just kind of gave him this role and was like, Hey, didn't even have a name in the script. It was just skinhead. And they, they ended up like giving him a name in the movie, but he's just having so much fun with it. I had, I really had a blast with his character. So with both pretty in pink and some kind of wonderful, they reshot the endings. So in pretty in pink, it was the big kind of famous ending that originally Ducky and Andy or Andy kind of get together uh, and I, it's like, no, we want her with Blaine. We want her with the rich dude. And Hughes was very upset by that. So he wanted to make sure in some kind of wonderful, the friend and the main character got together. But they had to do reshoots in some kind of wonderful as well. But the ending was the party scene. So they can include Elias Coast. So they include him in the party scene, apparently. So mm-hmm. apparently Stultz is wearing a wig, just like Andrew McCarthy was in Pretty in Pink. Oh, that's a bad wig in Pretty in Pink. I meant to bring that yeah. up. It looks awful. <laughs> Yeah, Stoltz, if you watch some kind of wonderful, Stoltz is wearing, has red hair throughout the entire movie, then has like black hair in the party scene. Mm. Like I, was so, party I was so distracted yeah. by Elias Codius in that scene, honestly. I, was, I, I wasn't looking at Stoltz. I, I, think it's, I think it's great. There's a little history. Originally, Martha Coolidge was going to direct the movie, and uh, Hughes fired her a week before just for some and then, reason and then because uh, i i was reading because deutsch kind of completely changed the cast too and he came in right so apparently originally uh kyle mclaughlin was the bully mm. was the big thing there was a different i would have liked that i did i didn't care for the bully i thought he was a little weak yeah in this. kyle mclaughlin was the bully it was kim delaney was amanda jones they recast uh her for leah thompson they wanted to fire stoltz but the studio's like, no, you're not firing him. And then Stoltz wanted to quit for Martha Coolidge's like, because of uh, allegiance to her. And she's like, no, you got fired from Back to the Future. You don't want to have a second movie yeah. that you lose like two year, like a year or two later. Like th- this will hurt your career if you do it. So he stayed on. Apparently, him and Deutsch did not speak for most of the movie. Apparently, he's 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 good in it, and he's very he's very handsome in it. Like he's he's. He's he's like equal parts, kind of kind of like not nerdy, but like he's he's not like he's he's not like a jock, like he's not a football player looks, but he's still kind of chiseled. Like he's, got bro- a good he's brooding, line. yeah, he's yeah. a brooding, and I, I do so I because I like this movie a lot, and I and it's not watched a lot, so I want to show. I love Mary Stuart Masterson in this film, yeah, as what she's amazing. I think that's to me what elevates it over Pretty in Pink a little bit. I think there's you, better you get, performances i think the, the script gives it but it's a combination of her and the script but when she's being an asshole to amanda you you feel for her like you know what she's going through and you feel for her when when yeah. ducky's just being so mean to blaine and mean to to andy you're like dude come on this is supposed to be your best friend like calm yeah down. i think i think it feels like ducky is doing it out of spite to like uh because he wants to be with Andy. I th- it feels like Watts is doing it as a friend of like, break his heart, I break your face. Mm-hmm. I think that statement is not to like, oh, I want to be with him. It's like, no, literally, I care about him that much. If you hurt him, I'm coming after you. Since when do your parents let you go clubbing on school nights? I'm waiting for Amanda. 
here, she's coming here on a school night? Did I miss something? Is there a new world order? Look, if you're gonna bug me and make me feel bad, can you do it later, please? She said she'd meet you here? Not in those words. In any words? Maybe she didn't have ID. Who doesn't have ID? Maybe she doesn't like you as much as you think. Maybe. Do you miss me, Keith? Do you miss not being around me? This isn't the third grade anymore. She doesn't love you. It's a joke. It's all a joke. How do you know? I'd bet my hands on it. I love the relationship of John Ashton, who plays his dad. Mm -hmm. um, if you see in this movie, there's a lot of either daughter, father, son, father relationships. And this is an underrated one because it's about them fighting over him going to school. There's a the, my, my favorite scenes, too, with Stoltz is the uh, he goes, you're only 18. You don't know what, what you want. He goes, oh, next year, I'm 19. Next year, I'm 20. When is my life mine? And that's like. I think the underlying that's the through line throughout John Hughes's teen films is the when is my life going to be mine and not my parents life and them living through me. You only hear what you want. Will you listen to me for once? I'm listening. I'm not going to go to college. The money is gone. You can't get it back. It's over. This whole dream It's not what I wanted. It's what you wanted. I never wanted it. I just didn't have the guts to tell you. Oh, you're only 18 years old, for Christ's sake. Then I'm 19, then I'm 20. When does my life belong to me? Dad, listen. I'm going out with a girl tonight, and she's beautiful, and everybody's in love with her, and she's going out with me. Get it? See, in the eyes of most people around here, I'm a nothing. And so I don't start agreeing with them, I'm gonna go through with this date. I just, I wanna show this girl that I'm as good as anybody else. So what, are you gonna impress her with money? You think that's the solution, Keith? Dad, didn't you ever have guys at your school that didn't fit in? Yeah, of course. Yeah? <laughs> well, I'm one of those guys. Thought things were going okay for you. Yeah, well, I like art. I work in a gas station. My best friend is a tomboy. These things don't fly too well in the American high school. I didn't know about this. Well, how could you know about it? You're my father. Briefly, the next film that Deutsch made with uh, John Hughes was The Grey Outdoors. It's fine. It's not a coming-of-age movie. I don't feel the need to necessarily discuss the ones that aren't coming-of-age movies. Deutsch, uh, Hughes is supposed to direct it. This is just a briefly transition to some of these. Uh, Hughes was supposed to direct it, but Hughes wanted to direct... Another movie he wrote, and he gave Grey Outdoors to uh, Deutsch. And the movie that Hughes directed instead was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with John Candy and Steve Martin because he wanted to do, he wanted to work with Steve Martin. John Candy, because I want to briefly talk about John Candy as kind of as this, as this transition for Hughes from uh, teen films to adult films. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is about a, a advertising uh, uh, executive or or, or copywriter played by Steve Martin, uh, who is trying to get home for Thanksgiving to see his family come from New York, going to Chicago. And he meets up with this kind of traveling, uh, man child basically in John Candy. Uh, and it's this odd couple S story on the road of them trying to get to Chicago. 
um martin saw it as kind of this like transition for him as in more emotional roles and Hughes saw it as transition to adult films yeah i think it's a thanksgiving classic i rewatched it for this i i really candy is it was a was a great friend to hughes and i think he was a good kind of surrogate for like these adult films for hughes of this kind of like again this younger version who can kind of it is hasn't grown up fully but knows how to talk to people can get get them in. he's a hustler he's mm -hmm. a he, not, or he's a not a hustler in a bad way he's a he's a he hustles to get work done so he knows kind of everyone so he's the one that gets them their hotel room gets them a car does this he is like this good good-hearted person when martin who kind of has everything is like is is not a bad person but is so focused on work and and like not having connections with anyone and candy is the opposite mm -hmm. um any thoughts real quick on planes trains and automobiles before we i mean i love it it's a it's a it's a classic um I, I i get where you're coming from with candy is like the person who comes to mature but it's not what i think about when i think of like that's fair coming i'm just i'm just trying to well i think that's more apparent in uncle buck so we'll transition to that real quick this family's just moved to Chicago. The mother, her grandfather, uh, or her father has a heart attack. They have to go off and visit them. Uh, and they bring in her brother-in-law, who's this kind of slob of a character who doesn't work, doesn't do anything. He, again, is this man-child. And he comes to watch these kids. And what I think is so unique about Uncle Buck is that he is, a, he is one of your first full adult characters in a teen film that is understanding to all the teens is that he has a read on them. He knows who they are because he's still in that kind of, he's older, but still kind of in that mindset of just like slacking off and not doing anything. And so he's able to kind of bridge the gap between the kids and their parents mm -hmm. and kind of helps them grow up in the process. And why I want to bring up uncle buck real quick is that it's the, it's the first mother sibling relationship in a John Hughes movie or mother and child sibling or mother and child relationship within a John Hughes movie. And I think the only mother daughter relationship in a John Hughes film, because it deals with uh, Tia played by Jean Louisa Kelly and her strained relationship with her mother, uh, Cindy. And at the end of the film, Buck has kind of helped her realize that her mother is like a, a relationship she should have and it's the ending is them getting together and Buck kind of showing Tia how important her parents are and which in turn is kind of like affects the parents and everything like that. And so it's the only one that really showcases that mother-daughter relationship in a film, but it is kind of in the background. Are you crazy? I can be. You could have taken his head off. Yeah, but what do you notice? Can we get something straight? The guy's a predator and you're his prey. Oh, really? Bet. And how do you know? When I was his age, I was the guy zooming the girls like you. Pretty face, big chip on your shoulder. I recommend that you stay out of my personal life. Do your parents stay out of your personal life? They don't know my personal life. Have they met Twiddledink? His name is Bug. <laughs> First or last? First. What's his last name, Spray? <laughs> you should talk buck moving on to a few more real quick because again we again we wanted to focus more on the teen films and and once he hits some kind of wonderful and uncle buck is kind of the last movie that deals with a teenage yeah. character in some way 
he did a movie called She's Having a Baby, which was his first real failure. Uh, most of Hughes's films made over about $40 million in box office. And She's Having a Baby only made 16 and was a box office bomb. And Hughes took it hard because it was his, he says it was his most autobiographical movie. It was about a young man who is working in advertising as a copywriter. And he marries his high school sweetheart at a very young age. And they move into a Chicago suburb. And he really wants to be a writer, but his copywriting job in Chicago is taking him away from that. And it's all about their their struggles of trying to have a baby. And when it wasn't a hit at the box office, this is what kind of put him into doing these family films that became pretty much the latter, the latter half of his career was all family films. Uh, he kind of took it personal that they didn't... I mean, it's hard as a creator where you're putting yourself out there and you're putting your emotions and what you feel out there into the world and if it's not accepted it could be a hard hard thing to take and because Mm -hmm. as we found out as hughes was very kind of a a temperamental person and because he was very in his emotions that was his first failure that really hurt him Mm -hmm. as we move on real quickly briefly on national lampoon's christmas vacation because this is getting to the kind of the hughes family film Initially supposed to be directed by Chris Columbus, but he did not get along with Chevy Chase, so he dropped out. Wow, uh, someone didn't get along with Chevy Chase. <laughs> and and uh, but Chris, Christmas Vacation has been as weirdly had a lot of le- had a, had strong legs after it came out. It wasn't a huge hit upon its release, and critics really didn't like it. But like, it's weirdly one of his most well-known films as yep. a writer. Go back and listen to our episode way back on Christmas movies. There's a there's a certain sweet spot. If you're just an okay Christmas movie, you can be a, you can become a classic. Damn. Okay. And I mean it is it is I mean it's honestly it's probably it's it's probably I mean it's not probably it's without a doubt the vacation movie I've seen the most because I watch it every year and I don't have a I don't have a set date when I say I'm going to sit down and watch the first vacation even though it's my favorite of the three. Yeah, yeah. Like you don't have a you know it's not like a july 4th movie or something i could say like okay here we go august 13th is gonna be i'm gonna watch vegas vacation or uh, not vegas vacation oh you're gonna watch vegas wow, vacation? no i'm not gonna rewatch i'm gonna With watch ethan embry is rusty and, i'm gonna uh, watch vacation every year on august 13th i could do that but like that's that's the beauty of a you know an okay christmas movie is you have a set time where it's like i gotta rewatch it man i cannot wait till we do an episode on vegas vacation it's gonna be so much fun oh yeah <laughs> Here, we'll, we'll do it well wayne, wayne even though that was not written by john hughes that was the only one not written no. by john hughes uh but wayne newton is in the movie and wayne newton has a song of ferris bueller um christmas vacation yeah go back and listen to that we might we might re we might re-look at christmas vacation come december we'll find out uh real quick home alone this was john hughes's biggest hit by far do you know how much this movie made at the box office I mean, I know it's still like in top, like, I mean, you know, we've, we've come a long way since with billion dollar movies, but for a while there, it was like top five highest grossing movies of all time. Yeah. It 476.7 million worldwide. It was huge. Everybody loved this movie. My grandfather used to love Home Alone. Like, you know, it's, it's not something you'd think this like kids movies from the from the 90s is not something you would think my like grandfather would sit and watch but he loved it but he did it's up there with crocodile hunter i mean crocodile dundee he, those are his two favorite movies in comparison can you guess what was hughes's most successful film as director Bo- internet like overseas and domestically uh 
Bueller? Bueller was his most domestic, his biggest domestic hit. Yeah, it, well, I mean, that's the thing is like dialogue doesn't really translate to international hit. And that's most of his like directorial stuff was all dialogue. Yeah. Ferris Bueller made 70 million worldwide. Coming at 79.2 million. Uncle Buck there was Hughes' most successful film as a director. On Home Alone, I feel like everyone knows it. It's about a kid who gets home, who gets left home alone and starts uh, almost kills some some robbers played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, who are great. Uh, weird thing about this. Uh, studios weren't a fan of, of kids' movies at this point because they said it didn't make a lot. So when Warner when Hughes was at Warner Brothers for this film, they asked him to cut the budget by a million dollars. He said no, and they put it into turnaround. Um, what's turnaround real quick for everybody, Thomas? Um, they basically like put it up for bid. Like somebody else could could come and, and take over it. Yeah, like, it's been, we're, yeah. We're gonna wash our it, hands of it, kind of thing. It, it kind of means your project's dead um, at that studio. So then it went to Fox and makes four hundred seventy nine million dollars or $476 million off that movie. Because of that, Warner Brothers never put projects in the turnaround for years <laughs> after that movie. Just until, they didn't do it for decades. They refused to let any project go because Home Alone was such a huge thing. Uh, John Candy pops in this movie and Hughes offered him 1% of the profits because he did the cameo for scale and Candy said no because he did it for, for a friend. Hmm. Go check out Home Alone. I don't want to spend too much on it. Really, Great. really good. We, we talked earlier that, that he didn't have a lot of like mother uh, child relationships. This one is is the heart the heart of this movie. The right? heart of it. I think it's the soundtrack's great, by the way. Underrated Christmas soundtrack in Home Alone. John Williams, right? Well, the score, but also like the Christmas oh, music. But yeah, yeah, John but John Williams' score is also great. Uh Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern have phenomenal chemistry as Marv and uh Oh God, Marvin! Why am I blanking on the other, other Harry. characters? Harry, thank you, Marvin Harry. I would have loved to have been on that set. I, I I often wonder if they had somebody whose job was to just like I, I'm sure it came to the script supervisor, but just mark down any time Pesci inadvertently cursed and like oh got to edit that one out. <laughs> yeah, I, I it was fun watching Home Alone one again. But Home Alone, why I wanted to bring this up, Home Alone became like. This became John Hughes' career for the entire 90s. John Hughes only directed eight movies in a seven-year span. And Home Alone, after this, it was him creating a formula. Even with his last film, uh, Curly Sue, starring Jim Belushi, uh, as this kind of, these two uh, uh, hustlers who are traveling, kind of hobo, like traveling hobos, basically, or hobos, who travel from city to city, uh, and conning people, and it's him and this young girl, Curly Sue. It's it's it's, it's kind of paper moons. It's yeah, it's ba- yeah, it's paper moon basically. Um, and they con uh Kelly Lynch, who's from Roadhouse, who's this like Chicago lawyer who has a lot of money, and they start living with her. It's his last film. It's it's fine. I'm a big <laughs> Jim Belushi fan. I'm maybe the only member of the Jim Belushi fan club. I'm not entirely sure. Never never heard that sentence said before. <laughs> I like I like good old Jim Belushi. I'm a big Belushi guy, John and Jim. Um, but yeah, it became his last movie. And so after this, he he really needed a hit. So he made Home Alone 2. And he just wanted to basically, he literally knew the sequel tropes. The cool, I'm going to give you that and just like up it to like 11. 
in terms of violence and these comedy Chaplin-esque silent film stunts. But it became the Hughes formula. And so in the 90s, he made he wrote films like Beethoven and Dennis the Menace and Baby's Day Out and the remake of Miracle on 34th Street and 101 Dalmatians and Flubber. It was just a bunch of kid films and remakes. And he lost that teen voice. He stopped directing a lot of, they say a lot of times because of the failure of she's having a baby and also because of John Candy's death, because they were so close and it ended up just being kind of home alone ended up being uh, like, a it hurt his, I get not leg. It didn't hurt his legacy, but like he, you could think of, uh, you had a whole other decade of John Hughes movies that were in the eighties, but instead we got family films, but they were his most profitable films probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving on before we're getting towards the end here. Quickly, his unrealized projects that he wrote but never got made. We talked about Nash Lampoon's Jaws 3, People Zero. Uh, He had a movie called The Last Good Year about 1962 before the British invaded the music scene in America. (laughs) One of his big ones that that was going to get made was called Bartholomew versus Neff, starring John Candy and Sylvester Stallone about two feuding neighbors. Uh, the one that was close to being made a couple times was was uh, Oil and Vinegar, was to star Matthew Broderick and Mo- Molly Ringwald in the 80s. Deutsch was wanting to direct it, but Hughes also wanted to direct it. It was about a soon-to-be-married man and a hitchhiking girl end up talking about their lives during the length of a car ride. It was basically Breakfast Club in a car with two people. Then he was looking at doing, this is coming back to Bob Fosse, he was going to di- write at least uh, two... two film adaptation remakes of the pajama game and damn Yankees hmm. two musicals that Bob Fosse choreographed. Um, I, as I said, he wrote the initial, he wrote the initial draft of dumb and dumber before the Fairley brothers took over. And his big project he was going to do was called the bee. It was about an architect who was building a house and is attacked by a bee. That's the plot. Cool. Only, only contained 10 pages of dialogue, all physical humor $50 million budget in the 90s, but the tech was not there. They could never develop the tech for a bee wrecking havoc on a guy. It was supposed to be Steve Martin. Then it was supposed to be Jackie Chan at one point. Um, hmm. Last film that didn't get made, or one of the films that get made, uh, uh, Tickets, about a group of teenage strangers who are camping out in zero-degree weather for their favorite band's farewell show. It didn't get made because of Detroit Rock City that got made about Kiss later on. John Hughes died uh, age 59 in 2009 of a heart attack while in New York City while walking one morning. And after that, it was there was a huge outpouring for Hughes and and admiration for his films. And he had a, a, a massive impact on the 80s and the teen genre. But it would have been interesting to see what he would have actually done if he continued that path he started in the 80s into the 90s. Uh, real quick, uh, Hughes trademarks. Did you notice any reoccurring trademarks in Hughes's films? Oh, I don't know. I, I got no. a bunch. What's that? Okay, so first off, all of the houses in his films have almost the exact floor plan. <laughs> they are all two-story houses that have stairs that lead to the front door of the house. Usually one side is the living room, other side is the dining room. Hughes said, uh, said once that all of the interiors in his films are places he has been. The soundtracks are a big part of the Hughes films. Mm-hmm. He usually picked them all. He liked picking bands that had not been discovered yet in the U.S. market. He was a big lover of import vinyls out of England. Yeah, I know Ducky. Ducky was listening to the Smiths at one point. Yeah, so he he liked using artists that were not mainstream yet. Is what it was. 
usually a lot of his movies are set around an important event a family road trip and vacation thanksgiving and planes trains and automobiles and dutch shout out dutch with ed o'neill go look it up uh christmas and home alone and christification birthday and weddings and 16 candles and prom and pretty in pink Sherman, Illinois is the biggest thing. The majority of Hughes' 80s films take place in Sherman, Illinois, his fictional world. He apparently had the entire community mapped out in his head down to the roads and where the people lived. He once said he knew who they were, how the characters knew each other, who lived where, and even if it was not in the movie, who were cousins. I think he said once that Ferris was uh, a passing acquaintance of Samantha in 16 Candles and Bender and John Candy's character from Planes, Trains, Automobiles lived in the same neighborhood freeze frames at least five of his movies that he directed all ended in a freeze frame (laughs) weird science breakfast club curly sue planes trains automobiles and uncle buck all ended in a freeze frame very 80s uh and the last thing i have breaking the fourth wall 16 candles home alone 2 pretty in pink ducky looks to camera when the girl is saying come here at the end of it weird science yeah just I, i i started picking up on those too i mean it's never as it's never as overt as as Ferris Bueller, but um, no, yeah. Real quick, we'll go through these highest rated films. Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club is tied for number one at Ferris three Bueller. point. Ferris Bueller's tied for number one as well. What, what else? Am I, number two. Number two. Uh, number well, number three. Number basically, it's two movies are tied for the top spot. Two movies are tied for the second spot. Uh, vacation. No. No. Letterbox. What? No. 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 Uh, Pretty in Pink no that's 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 much lower actually some kind of wonderful much lower that's like a 3.3 oh come on guys uh planes trains automobiles at 3.7 and home alone at 3.7 wow okay letterbox okay i nice. think i think christmas vacation is at 3.6 by the way i just want to throw that out there. over over regular vacation yeah uh, yeah uh lowest rated films jim Belushi. curly sue is 2.6 that is his lowest as a, as a director as a director it's his lowest drill bit taylor <laughs> that that i didn't count because he he only did the characters for that's that's a seth rogan movie more than a john hughes movie uh home alone three home alone three is his lowest as a writer at a 2.0 i loved home alone three when i was a kid i saw it in theater scott young scott johansson i'll i'll tell you them just because because i have two divisions as a writer lowest to to highest home alone three at 2.0 dennis the menace at 2.4 and class reunion at 2.4 uh, as a director, Curly Sue at a 2.6, She's Having a Baby at 2.9, and Weird Science at 3.1. Uh, most popular film? Uh, Ferris Bueller? That's number two. Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club number one at 441,000 wow, views on Letterboxd. I think Ferris Bueller is like 360,000 views on Letterboxd. Uh, least popular film. Uh, you got okay. to tell me that. <laughs> at, as a director, she's having a baby at five thousand six hundred views. As a writer, a movie called Reach the Rock that came out in the nineties. Ninety-seven people. Wow. Have seen it on Letterboxd. Uh, Reach the Rock is about a small town troublemaker, directional, directionless, and alienated, ends up spending a night in a jail cell where he and the police chief engage in a battle of wills and wits. There you wow. go. Biggest year. 85. 85 as a director. Uh, Breakfast Club and Weird Science came out that year. Overall, 1991. Uh, directed Curly Sue. Wrote Career Opportunities, which is, I like that. It's a fun film. 
but also it's just Home Alone, but set in a Target with Frank Whaley and Jennifer Conley. And then only the Lonely and Dutch was that year as well. Mm-hmm. Most appearances by an actor. John Candy. John Candy. Eight appearances total in John Hughes movies, including cameos. Uh, the next two, I didn't realize this. Uh, Ed, uh, Edie McClurg, who plays the car rental character in Planes, Trains, Automobiles, the mm-hmm. greatest scene in the entire movie. And then I was surprised by this. Coming in at four appearances, Ali Sheedy. Really? Was in The Breakfast Club. She's having the she's having a baby, I think, like, briefly in some sort of cameo role. She is in Home Alone 2. And I noticed it when we watched it. I was like, is that Ali Sheedy? And then it was. She works the airport when Kevin realizes he's in New York. He asks where he's at. Where is he at? And she says, you're in New York City. Mm. It's mm. Ali Sheedy. And then she's also in Only the Lonely that was stars John Candy in this like Marty-esque movie uh, directed by Chris Columbus. Okay, final questions. We're, we're getting there, guys. We're almost at the end. Is John Hughes an auteur, Thomas? Uh, I think so. I think he, he's he got all the, you know, we've talked about similar themes, talked about using the same cast members, kind of having like muses that he writes for. I think, I think just looking at Pretty in Pink into some kind of wonderful alone, like the idea of, of like trying to embedder your own movie um, twice yeah. in a row is, is definitely an all tour move, even when he wasn't. And that's the thing. We've talked a couple of times about people whose writing is so strong that it transcends directors. And, and I mean, it does help that he worked with Deutsch enough that, you know, they kind of played off of each other and created like their own, like Deutsch and Hughes style together kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, especially I think if you're a, a, if you're a director who can create your own style out of other people's scripts or a writer who can hold you, who can still control the movie, it seems as a writer producer, and not yeah. the director. I think that that absolutely makes you an auteur. And that's not technically, you know, technical auteur theory is someone who writes and directs or directs off of the same person's scripts. But I think the 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 you know the ultimate test for auteur theory is 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 this their voice? Um, is their voice coming through continually? And I think he absolutely is. I agree completely. What are his running themes? Uh, I think feeling feeling trapped not necessarily by space like most of his movies they don't have negative feelings towards Shermer or you know Correct, but feeling yeah. trapped within your social standing whether it is your yeah. economic social standing or whether it is your your clique i think just feeling very like helpless and by these like social lines that are drawn and um and i think you know coming to I think a lot of times he had when, when you matured, when his teenagers matured within their movies, mm-hmm. realizing, forming a bond with your parents by like realize, becoming more mature within the, the journey of the movie and, and recognizing what your parents are going through a little bit more. I think everybody has a, a lot of his movies that do have relationships with parents feature like feeling a little bit more empathetic towards what your parents are going through kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think the big thing for him is like these, these these clicks and these social circles. I think that is what he really brought to the genre. Yeah, and the genre had a really hard time shaking it afterwards, for better or for worse. It's um, it's it's what he he really brought to the genre. And there's some other stuff we talked about. Not so great than the the pushy nerd getting the girl, um, sexual all the sexual harassment, all that stuff did come into the genre and and held there for a while. The bad boy and like 
it being a girl's responsibility to fix the bad boy. I know that existed prior to this, but, yeah, yeah. but I think he really modernized it, especially with Bender. But yeah, I think a, the, the big theme is just this kind of like the social pressures and and trying to get out from under them, trying to get out from what is expected of you and and just and getting to the heart of like that all teenagers feel that way. I think that's that's his greatest contribution is saying, hey, we're all you're all in different situations right now but you all feel i promise you you all everyone else feels this way no matter if they're a jock or a rich kid or everyone else is going through this and i think that's that's kind of his his legacy within this genre yeah and last thing i want to say about themes i agree completely with all that is his uh happy endings Mm -hmm. many critics did not like the happy endings in this film during the 80s specifically the breakfast club and he once said, there's no way I'm ever going to end the movie on a negative note. And that is very apparent throughout pretty much his entire career. Yeah. Is that he never really has a downer ending of any kind. The If it's a family movie or there's some sort of like parental relationship, it always comes out on top. It's always improved for the better where the parent understands the child and the child understands the parent. Or the kids understand each other like Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. That is apparent in all of his films anything else you want to say about john hughes thomas because i think think we i think we may have covered it man guys thank you so much for staying with us during this (laughs) long episode we'll see how long it's going the runtime's going to be after i edit next month we've ended our coming of age month of july for the month of august the original plan we thought tenet was coming out well guess what it's not we're doing spy movies for the month of august which i know thomas is very very happy by for our first episode we're going to be doing kind of an intro into the spy genre Second episode for our classic film, we're going to be talking about The Conversation. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Even though he's not technically a spy, we will show how it fits into the spy genre. And then for our contemporary film, we're going to be talking about Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible Fallout. And then for our final episode, we're not doing a director episode this month. We're going to be talking about the James Bond franchise for our final episode which means I have to watch a lot of James Bond films. Haha, <laughs> Brandon finally has homework that I don't have. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a very Thomas-heavy uh, Thomas month, it feels like. When I sent him the list of movies for the first episode, cool, I only have to watch like two movies. I'm like, I have to rewatch all these. All right, moving <laughs> on. Um, but guys, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a rating. Uh, give us a review that helps... Uh, people find us and we want to hear what you guys think of what we're currently doing in this new kind of format we've been doing these past few months make sure you like us on facebook twitter instagram and on medium see what we're writing writing each month on the films we're watching um yeah i think that's it thomas as always thank you for joining me yeah man it's been it's been a blast it's been a journey let's let's end this one on a on a audio freeze frame Uh, audio freeze yeah (laughs) anyway guys (laughs) Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.